This episode of Chat Grab on Cheap Hops is brought to you by zenpop.jp. Use the link in our description for $5 off your next order by using the code GRAPPLE. To another super special edition of Chat Grapple and Cheap Pops podcast. I am JB, and with me, as always, is the best Chris in all of wrestling podcasts, Chris Dredd. How are you, Chris? Done, no, done, no. Um, I'm all good, bruv. I'm really excited. Again, we were supposed to do a review, and <laughs> something has popped up, and now we've just cut that, and we've got a very special guest on again, man. I'm excited, I'm gassed. Um, we have, yeah, we have got a very yeah. special guest. This has come about very quickly. So, as always, you know, the surprises keep coming here at the uh, Chat Grapple and Cheap Pops podcast. So, let's get to it. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another very special episode of Chat Grapple and Cheap Pops podcast. We've got another amazing guest who has literally come out of the darkness and he is joining us now on this Sunday evening. We want to welcome probably one of the most underrated wrestlers, I would say, in, in, in a long, long time, um, Mr. Max Payne. Hello. Uh, how you doing, man? Great to have you. I'm doing so good, man. I, I uh, you know, life is treating me really good right now, so how can I complain, you know? Uh, we're so we're so thankful that you've decided to join us and we've got a, we've got a ton of questions we'll try and keep it as as brief as we can we know you know you're probably a busy man you've got a lot to do so it's okay we, i'm yours for the next however long you need me oh, amazing. <laughs> we, we've had we've had people go for three hours on this show before so we'll try not to do that but okay. <laughs> um, firstly how have you been like what's what's going on so you know i uh I uh, took, a, as you guys know, I, I took a huge hiatus from the wrestling world in general. I, I, I was uh, pretty discouraged at the end of my wrestling career, and I just, you know, I decided it, it was time for me to leave and raise my family and uh, pursue a, a different life because I was always one of those guys that... Uh, I love the wrestling business, but I was also aware enough that, you know, by the time I was, you know, in my mid thirties, a lot like other guys like Kurt Angle and the guys who were actually amateur wrestlers, you know, I'd been wrestling since I was basically in second grade in school, you know, so I was, I was pretty tore up. So um, it was a good thing, uh, you know, and I had a, a lot, of stuff I wanted to do in my life and so I went and started doing it and um, kind of made some plans things I eventually would like to revisit the wrestling business with but and wow it just it opened back up and you know I, I I'm really looking forward to it because I got quite a few uh, hidden treasures I'm looking forward to um, uh, giving to the wrestling fans and uh, 
it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. So I've been doing great. I actually, um, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I didn't expect to live to be 60 years old. <laughs> I don't know how many wrestlers do because uh, I was just watching a special on Roddy Piper the other day and he was talking about his retirement. And he says, fuck, everybody knows I ain't going to make it to 60. And I, you know, I thought how prophetic, how prophetic that, you know, Roddy knew that. And uh, I got to be honest with you. I quite frankly, I'm, uh, had I not changed my life, that's part of the reason I left the business is, you know, had I not changed my life and who I was and what I was doing, uh, I would have just followed, unfortunately, in all the footsteps of my peers. And I, I would, I'm pretty sure I would be another wrestling statistic. And so I'm just honored to still be here. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm doing really, really good. Um, I mean, you are definitely from the era where we did have a lot of tragedy, um, a lot of premature uh, deaths and people leaving us prematurely. Do you, do you think um, that it was the, the lifestyle that people were living then? Was it pretty much sex, drugs, rock and roll and, and that kind of thing, do you think? You know, let me... You know, I love that question. Let me tell you why. Because um, I, I met Tesla one time uh, in Germany, the band Tesla. And uh, we were talking about, they, they were going like, God, it's amazing how similar you guys' lifestyle is to ours. And I said, yeah, but there's a little difference. And he said, yeah, well, well, what, what do you mean? I said, well, Tomorrow night when you get done playing, I said, when you go to your bus, stop in front of the bus door and uh, jump as high as you can in the air and land on your back 10 times and then get on the bus. Yeah. And then and then we'll talk about comparisons. People don't realize that wrestlers play a rugby game, a football game, an American football game every single day of the year and you you know it, it's such a vicious cycle that it, it's it's you know wrestlers uh were the pulse of like the opioid crisis you know wrestlers were the guys that were living on painkillers because they had to it's not you know of, of course they were addicted to the opioids in them but the reason they were addicted is because they fucking needed them you know you you know like jesse ventura said once that i i never left the ring that i wasn't in pain and it's so true and uh so it is sex drugs and rock and roll but then uh the most incredible physical pain that you could add to that. And the last dichotomy of that is people still have their own predisposed ideas about whether wrestling's real or not. That's not the question, but they, they still look at it sometimes as though you could, you could do it and not get hurt. And it's, it's impossible. You can't, you can't, you can't fall down for a living and not get hurt. I don't care who the fuck you are. I don't care how good you are at it. Um, and that's the reason that we're all skilled at falling down. But, you know, when you're fucking 350 pounds and you fall down every day of the week, you know, 10, 15, 20 times, it takes a very quick toll on you. And uh, wrestlers are 
a symptom of their own demise because it's like I said, it's just a self-perpetuating uh, pain drama that the only way out of it a lot of times is taking pills. And as we all know, literally that's a dead end um, because eventually no matter how many you take, it won't take the pain away. And that's when you start pushing yourself to places where your body finally just says, fuck that. And I can't take 200 milligrams of, you know, pure opium and survive your body, uh, you know, just the, your brain just says, okay, that's it. And so um, it's, it's a, it's a tough lifestyle and it's like rock and roll in terms of the travel, but the pain, in my opinion, genuinely separates the men from the boys, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, um, myself and Jordan, we, uh, we trained in wrestling for a good couple of years. Um, you we know, tried. we were, we tried. We, we tried, you know, and. But you know how bad it hurts. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, even, even that though, Max, like even, doing training for a couple of years we've still probably got injuries i know my knee is still fucked from training all that right. then many years ago and and jordan i know your back probably ain't the same as it ever uh, no was. It, it never will be but like, you know it never will be and we literally did fuck all in on the scale of it you know we we literally it pales in comparison to like you say hitting hitting that ring every day bumping on the outside on the mats you know even the most innocuous little things taking, you know, suplexes and, and stuff like that. And even offensive moves when you're coming off the top of the, you know, these guys that do the flying elbows from the top turnbuckle that takes it out of your hips. And these guys have had, you know, multiple hip replacements. Um, you know, that yeah. stuff, like you say, man, it is, it, it is more than sex, drugs and rock and roll. It is, your body is literally getting beaten the crap out of on a, on a nightly basis and the traveling as well, you know, where you've, you, you, like you say, you're either driving somewhere afterwards where you've got to get a plane, you know, and you're taking the drugs like that to sleep and the uppers, the downers, you know, that kind of shit. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. It's just a vicious, vicious cycle. And it's so funny, you know, when you brought up, you brought up the training, man. I had a, I had a little school in my hometown. I, I ran my own little territory and, uh, it was so funny. I had these, uh, I had, I can't tell you how many guys I had come to my camp, you know, that wanted to be wrestlers. And said, so I said, okay, so the first thing I'm going to teach, teach you how to do is hit the ropes. And uh, I had more than one guy, you know, I got, I jumped in the ring, hit the ropes as fast as I could, jumped out and I said, now that's what you need to do. Go do that. And I literally had two or three people hit the ropes, jump out of the ring and say, oh, no, I'm done. I can't do that. I, you know, <laughs> so, you know it's, it's one of those things. I remember when I first just started hitting the ropes, I had bridge, I had bruises all the way around my rib cage when I first yeah. started. And I was an amateur wrestler, too. So, you know, it's not like I didn't understand getting the shit kicked out of you in practice and training and, and competition. Um, but I was not prepared for how tough professional wrestling was, you know, and uh, I'll tell you, it, it just takes its toll, but that's part of the reason why wrestlers are so infamous because they do carry that, uh, they carry a very, very serious, uh, almost an enigma with them, don't they still by today's standards, 
wrestling is still, even though it's been exposed a bunch, the true inner workings of wrestling is not very public at all. You yeah. Know? And it really, I don't think people care anymore. I think, you know, I think it's way past that now. So, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's a tough business. It's a really tough business. So if you're oh. thinking about doing it for the love of God, you know, make sure you do everything you can to train right and, you know, do all the right things. So, I mean, even the, like you say, the true enigma of wrestling still not being known, you know, even the fact that they call the ropes ropes when they're actually metal cables wrapped yeah. in tape, like, you yeah. know, it, it's crazy. You know, I remember hitting the ropes first time and I went home and I took my T-shirt off and my partner at the time said, fucking hell, what's happened to your back? And I was just, <laughs> I didn't even know myself. I thought it hurt, you know, and I looked in the mirror, like you say, the welts on the back, it's, you know, that kind of stuff. It's incredible, man. It's, um, but, but that is the beauty of wrestling, I think, because, yeah. you know, it for people inside, it is a very close community. It's almost like a cult um, where to the point of, you know, not a cult, it's like, a, you know, it has that cult aspect of it, you know, where it, it is a family, a fraternity. I think, you're, I think you're right, though. I think it is a cult. I, I really do. Because... Um... You know, the, the wrestling business, is, as you guys know, it's not always based on your talent. You know, it's it's based a lot. So just like everything else, it does, you know, there's it's just the way it is. It's just the way the business works. Sometimes people get breaks. What the fuck? How come I couldn't, you know, get one of those kind of breaks or whatever? And, you know, you can't you just it's it's just a fucking tough and part of the reason it is is because wrestlers, you know, they the older guys. I don't know about the new school because I, I have been so removed. I don't know. And when I left the business, I really left it. I mean, I, you know, people go, "Hey, remember back in two thousand and two when these guys?" I'm like, "No," because I quit watching it. I just left. And um, you know, it's one of those things that to be a part of that group. Once you're finally in it, I, I will tell you, when I quit, the hardest addiction I had to face quitting was the wrestling side of it. It wasn't the drugs. It wasn't that stuff. It was the being in the ring and the thrill of the pop when that leaves you and you don't, you know, you, you don't get that every day. Um, that's a that's a fucking hard withdrawal, I will tell you. And so you're right. It is a cult and it, it, it's very, so once you are in it, as you can plainly see, you, you don't, it's pretty tough to leave. It's pretty tough to ever be out of it. It's pretty tough to not be uh, affiliated with it in some way. And um that's kind of why I'm back. You know, it, it showed back up in my life at a time where I had really planned actually this whole thing out kind of. And so uh, when it showed up again, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take it. Cause this time I can, I can make money without falling down for a living. So <laughs> I don't have to fucking take a bump anymore. I can just go sign autographs and say hi to fans and meet new people. And I love that. That part's the great side of it now. So. 
I'll apologize now because we do we tend to jump around from time to oh, don't time. worry like no we, don't, we don't we never seem to end up doing a set like where it's in any order so I'd like to ask you I'd like to ask you about the CWA okay uh, how did that how did that come about are we talking uh sorry catch uh in Germany yeah, catch. yeah. so um that's funny I just was telling that story last night so I had, uh, I'd left Japan, I'd been in Japan, then I went to Memphis, and then after Memphis, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get booked anywhere. And, uh, I, I was basically sitting at home, and there was a company years and years ago called WordPerfect, and they made the first word processing software and they were based out of my hometown in Orem, Utah. And uh, they had this massive campus, 27 buildings, and it was just a fucking huge software corporation. It was, it was actually the biggest word processing software in the beginning. And the only reason that they didn't go any further is because they refused to sell to Microsoft. And Microsoft said, okay, well, if you're not going to sell to us, we'll invent our own. And they word, and now nobody knows who the fuck Word Perfect is, right? But anyway, I, still, I went to get a job with these guys. And um, I got a call back. So I was getting ready to go meet the, the guy that was going to, you know, the, whether I was going to get this job or not. And Chris Benoit called me on the phone. And he said, uh, Max, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I got fucking trying to find a job. He goes, well, I got you one. He goes, you want to go to Europe? And I said, fuck yeah. So I made a decision right then that whichever thing called me first, that was going to be my destiny. If Otto called me first, I was going to Germany. And if Word Perfect called and offered me the job first, I was going to go do that. Because the Word Perfect job would have been great. It was good money. It was I could walk to work every day. Um, and as soon as I hung up the phone, Otto called. And so I went to uh, Germany for two years. And uh, the rest, as they say, is the beginning or the history or whatever you want to call it of my career after. I mean, the CWA is what ended up giving me um, my opening to Cowboy Bill Watts and Rip Rogers called Bill for me and the rest is, is history. Did that answer that? Yeah. Oh, perfect, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we had um, Alex Wright on the podcast as well a little while ago. I love Alex. Yeah, and he's a great guy. I mean, you got any, because uh, obviously being in Germany for a couple of years, I'm sure you would have probably come across Steve and, and Alex. Oh, of course. I worked with Steve. I, I wouldn't even know how many times. Um, I love the Wright family. Uh, I loved, I mean, Steve was, Steve was one of my biggest fans. Steve was always uh, behind me, loved my gimmick. He was the one that he would come in while I was practicing in Germany, while all the other, a lot of the other wrestlers would bitch because I was in practice and trying to get my guitar gimmick working. And they were trying to have a nap in the afternoon. And so, you know, <laughs> they were a little bummed out that I was in there practicing. 
But in the end, it worked out okay because they they didn't they weren't so bummed out when I started playing my guitar in a city that we hadn't done any business, and all of a sudden we started doing great business, and they were a little more appreciative after that. But um, you know, the CWA, I, I really feel bad to this day what I did in the end of my career to to Otto, and I would like to apologize to him and Mike, uh, his son Mikey personally and i i loved everything about the cwa but i was done you know i i was so discouraged and so by the time i left my i went there the third time i think it was in 97 and i left uh in the middle of vienna because i was fucking miserable but that wasn't their fault that was my fault and i didn't know any other way to fix it but to just fucking go home and uh, tuck my head between my legs, so to speak, and, and move on. But the CWA, I will tell you, I have nothing but great memories of wrestling all over Europe with those guys and just loved all of them. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure like uh, the, the, the referee, uh, <laughs> Little Scottish dude, I'm, I I know he's had to have passed. Uh, wore a kilt all the time as the ref for the CW. <laughs> what was his name? Oh, uh, yeah, that one. God, you guys are probably too young to even know him. Oh my God, what was his name? Fuck, he was awesome. But anyway, I had like you know the there was the Colonel, and I just loved it. All of the guys were so good, you know. That once again the fraternity of, uh, you know, the wrestlers. Once you're in and once you, you know, get it down, um, you're, you're family. And that's really cool. So um, when you started wrestling and you, uh, when you were younger, um, is it true that you had a motorcycle accident that kind of stopped you from wrestling and then you kind of went back into it later when you, when you was in the NCAA? So that's absolutely true. So, Wow, man, my high school wrestling career, um, it was really crazy. Uh, so I started wrestling, like I said, probably in second grade doing, they, we had little wrestling camps for kids. And, and initially I wasn't that, I wasn't that into wrestling. In fact, I told my high school football coach, you know, I went because my brothers did and I didn't like that much. I told my high school football coach, I said, he goes, you're coming out for wrestling this season, aren't you? And I said, no. He goes, well, you're not playing football. I'm like, what? Okay, I'll go wrestle then. All right. So, you know, as a freshman, I was on the team because at the time, uh, the school had four years of, like, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. The freshmen were in the high school still. Um, so, but playing like on varsity school sports yet so it wasn't it wouldn't have been until I was a sophomore that I could have actually played high school football so my first year in wrestling um as a, as uh I was actually a freshman in high school they let me wrestle and I went to the our biggest rival in wrestling and uh, they, it was called Carbon High School. They were in Price, Utah. And I went there and I pinned their state champion. I was a freshman. He was a senior. I pinned their state champion. 
in front of him. As you can imagine, that really pissed him off. And uh, I did really good. So I was really, really excited to start wrestling again the following year. And that summer I was riding my motorcycle and uh, it was actually school had just started. It was on a weekend. School had just started. It was on a Sunday. And the reason I remember that is because the lady that come out and helped me get up and after I crashed, um, the first thing she said to her son is, say that's why you don't ride your motorcycle on a Sunday. <laughs> Thanks. My fucking knees broke in half and you're fucking bitching at me because I'm riding my motorcycle. I'm sorry. <laughs> It didn't really help. But luckily, her husband was a doctor. He came out and fucking loaded me up with some morphine, and I didn't care after that. But no, I did. I crashed when I was a sophomore, beginning of my sophomore year, destroyed my left leg, and they rebuilt it. And I went back after uh, the Christmas break and uh, made a decision, uh, you know, that I was going to come back. And uh, actually, the football coach at the time, it's a big story, and I don't want to tell you the whole thing because it would take me literally a long time. I will tell it eventually. So hopefully I'm going to my get my goal is to have a book out in the very near future. But awesome. um, anyway, bottom line is uh, I went back. Uh, the high school football coach told me I would never succeed at anything ever in my life again because I'd quit football because I hated his fucking guts. I went back. And by the middle of my junior year, I had pinned every single person I'd wrestled against. And over Christmas break, um, a theatrical casting agent showed up at my house. And they'd already been to all the wrestling rooms in the state looking for other things. And I never tried out for it, even though I was huge into drama. I had drama in school, took all the, you know, theater classes and all that shit. And... Um, this lady came and said to me, hey, they're shooting this movie over uh, in American Fork, which is a town just next to where I live. She said, if you go over tomorrow and try out, you could get an extra part and it could mean good money for you. So I asked my coach if I could go. He said, yes. Bottom line, I went and it wasn't an extra part. It was a major role in this motion picture. It's called Takedown. It's That's on right. YouTube. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Takedown. Yeah, it's on YouTube, and uh, I did that movie, and if you watch it, you'll see. It's a, it's a pretty big supporting role, and uh, that was actually, that whole scenario happened in the year of 1978. So from January to March of 1978, I was in a movie. In that time, I went to state, wrestled a guy, and took second in state. Um, and quite frankly, I'll tell you this now because I know Robert really well, the guy that, uh, that beat me. And I'm not taking his win away from him. He deserved it. And I felt he deserved it. And with one second left, I had a hold of his leg. And I could have tied the match, gone into overtime, and I let go. And uh, I know that sounds like, oh, you're making an excuse. I'm not making an excuse. Robert deserved the championship he'd worked out with his team he set the goal to beat me but i still I, I drove myself to all my own wrestling matches that year my coach fucking hated me and the only people that liked me was my team because when i showed up i pinned everybody and uh they they didn't they didn't want anybody else to be the heavyweight at the time so anyway i 
shot the movie till March that year. Found out my girlfriend was pregnant, got married on June 9th. And uh, by on 21st of uh, December, I had my oldest son. So I was married, I, I was in a movie, dropped out of high school, <laughs> got married and had a son uh, by the end of that year. And then I worked construction for a year and decided, fuck this shit. I hated that. I'm going to go back to school. I, I wanted to go. Uh, I wanted to go study film and television. And I, I fought until I got a scholarship to go to a, ended up in a junior college. And there's a lot to that story too, but ended, I, I was going to go to Oklahoma state. They didn't have, they didn't have a scholarship for me. I ended up going to a small junior college where I was a two-time All-American national champion on a national championship team and was recruited by all the major universities in the United States with wrestling and ended up going to Iowa State and was uh, an All-American there and broke an NCAA, uh, unofficial NCAA record that will probably stand forever. It's, it's, I have a, even have a plaque that, in fact, let me see if I can show you this plaque. This is just, this is kind of a, so you know I'm not bullshit because wrestlers have a tendency to. I know it's hard to believe this, but yeah, no. <laughs> wrestlers are pretty famous for bullshitting. And so that's this, the award for winning by record. most pins, right? Yeah, it, it actually says. I don't know if you can see what it says there, but it says. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is. It says to a record that may never be broken. This my coach, my college coach, gave me this. And his name was Dr. Harold Nichols. And I can tell you, I'd been there for three years. And uh, when, I, when I did that, I, I got to tell you, that was, I, I, I don't even know how to say it. I, I remember the pride on his face when I walked off the mat. He said to me, he goes, <laughs> he said to me as I was walking off, he goes, can I just ask you one question? And I said, well, yeah, Nick, what is it? He goes, why haven't you done that the whole time you've been here? <laughs> well, by the time I got to college, by the time I got to the NCAA level, I had three fucking kids. You know, I, wow. I mean, I, you know, there were no provisions. And if it hadn't have been for my coach looking after me, I don't know how I ever made it through college, you know. And that's part of the reason I went to Iowa State at the time because my my wife's, my ex-wife's family was from there. And uh, it just made it easy to go to school there. But um, yeah, I, I, so your question was, did you destroy your leg? Yep. And somehow managed, you know, and believe it or not, uh, fuck, knock on wood, um, that knee still works. And uh, I don't know, I'm not quite sure how, but it does. I mean, that is a hell of a hell of a fucking rebuild, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, I lost everything. I lost anterior, posterior, cruciate, and medial lateral collateral. So I basically hyperextended, broke my leg at the knee. And um, it was tough. It was fucking really tough for a 15 year old kid, you know, to try and come back from that. But I, I, I did it. And I was, I'm glad I did. That is a, uh intestinal testicular fortitude right there um or just pure fucking insanity because i wanted to go back to school so bad and get back into the movies really the 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 voice in my head that drove my heels at the time was the motion picture industry 
And uh, so you moved to you moved to Los Angeles after that, right? So now I'm glad I told you the takedown story because when I graduated from school, the director of photography's name was Reed Smoot. And Reed lived in the town next to me, uh, another town next to me in Utah County called Provo. And uh, Reed, uh, the director of photography, lived there. And so I called him, his name was, his number was in the phone book. I called him and he knew, I, I said, hey, Reed, this is Bovich. That was my name in the movie. And he knew my name and he laughed. He said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, hey, can I come and talk to you? And uh, he said, yeah. So I went to his house and uh, I will tell you a really interesting story in the middle of this. So I go to his house, his name was Reed Smith. And there, this is, I'm not going to tell you a whole bunch about this because there's something coming in my future that uh, it's a novel, actually, I'm writing. Amazing. Um, I, I went to Reed's house and I went inside and I'm looking at his pictures and here's this really old black and white photo. And in this fucking photo is my grandfather. And I'm like, how do you know J.W. Humphrey? And he goes, oh, he was good friends with my grandfather. And my grandfather was instrumental, not instrumental. He is the reason that Bryce Canyon was saved for posterity because cattle ranchers were trying to drive cows through fucking Bryce Canyon. Natural resource. I don't know if you know what Bryce Canyon is, but if you don't look it up, you'll be fucking shocked. It's one of the most Utah has five national parks. Right. Bryce Canyon's one of them. And uh, so Reed and I were <laughs> kind of bonded in a weird fucking way beyond that. And so we went out on the porch, he gave me a glass of lemonade. It was one of those old, he was living in his grandfather's house. His grandfather bequeathed it to him. And we were sitting on the front porch. His fucking house was right on Main Street in Provo. I mean, I could go on and on about this. Like I said, this is all part of the novel. You'll hear more sure. detail. Anyway, I went and I said, we started drinking fucking lemonade and laughing and telling stories. And he said, he said, listen, Max, there's only one thing you can do. You got to go to L.A. If you want to be in the motion picture industry, he goes, go to L.A. And his last words to me when I walked off his porch, he said, Hey, when you go to LA, keep an open mind because you never know what you'll find. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know. So I uh, went to LA and uh, was really struggling to find a job. Couldn't find one. And one morning, I thought, okay, I'm going to sleep in and I'm just going to go to the beach, go boogie boarding and body surfing with my cousin today. And I fucking five o'clock, he's up listening to the radio. And I'm like, got my fucking God damn it, Jason. He said, he comes running in my room. He goes, hey, you want to go to a movie premiere tonight? And I said, what? He goes, I just fucking won tickets off of K-Rock, which is one of the biggest stations in L.A. <laughs> I just won premiere movie tickets at Man's Chinese Theater for Pee-wee's Big Top Adventure. <laughs> I know. Okay, so fucking... I said, fuck yeah. So we went boogie boarding all day. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the same day we went to see Back to the Future. It just come out, 85. 
and uh, went to LA. And I'm, we're standing there, fucking James Brolin, Alice Cooper, David Lee Roth, and the list goes on. Just star after star rolling into this movie. And there's a security guard standing there, and he's half my size. And I walked over to him. I said, hey, how hard would it be to get a job with you guys? And he goes, he looked at me, turned around. It's so funny because he wasn't really looking at me when I was talking to him. He turned around and looked at me and he went, oh, fuck, you'd have a job in two seconds. And I said, okay. And he gave me the number and I called him and he was right. I called, they hired me on the phone. Wow. And uh, I couldn't find the place for the first night. And he said, that's fine. He said, tomorrow I need you to go to the Olympic Auditorium. I went and did that gig. And then the next day was... Um, was a there was a fight at the uh, Palladium on Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. It was Tate, Tillman, and Gonzalez. And I think it was Tate's debut after the Olympics in 84 as a professional fighter. And uh, three big things happened to me at that fight that day. It was so crazy. It's, uh, you know, it's that, it's those destiny, you know, like Breed said, keep your mind open you never know what's going to happen so i uh i'm standing at the back door they very first they put me at the back door um guarding the back door the stage door and i'm standing there and i'm i'm kind of facing the stage but i'm kind of looking out the door making sure nobody's coming all of a sudden i feel this bam somebody hits me in the chest and i look down and all i can see is blonde hair and she turns and looks up at me and it's farrah fawcett <laughs> and she was so cute because she looked up at me and she goes I'm so sorry and I'm like Farrah you can do that anytime and she got <laughs> so then they put me at ringside because I, I knew cameras and stuff and there was a cameraman backing up towards me and nobody was behind him and I I'd studied television and film in college I actually worked for a television station for three years while I was at Iowa State University. So I knew television production really well. And this guy's backing up towards me. And I just, anytime you help a handheld cameraman, he's walking backwards. You just put your hand on his back so he knows you're safe. So this guy's backing up towards me. Nobody's behind him. And I just reached out, put my hand on his back and followed him back. When he turned around, it was a guy I had met at Iowa State University who had come there He'd been hired by the NCAA to come and do interviews about uh, the wrestling uh, tournament that was coming up. And I fucking knew this guy. And I, he, he turned around, he looked at me. He goes, you need a job? And I said, yes. And he handed me a fucking car. Wow. And uh, no sooner did that guy walk away from me than this, this other dude walks up to him. And he's got a different kind of security shirt on. And he goes, are you Daryl Peterson? I said, yeah. He goes, I fucking know you. My family knows your family. I go, really? His name was Dave Knudsen. Well, my last name is Peterson. So most of Utah, a lot of Utah was uh, Scandinavians. And uh, Dave said, you ever thought about being a professional wrestler? And I said, uh, actually, at that time, I was still so proud of being an amateur wrestler. I said, fuck that shit. And I didn't say that to him. I said, yeah, I thought about it before. He said, come on, I want you to meet somebody. And he took me over to the VIP area, and uh, there was Red Bass Sting. And uh, Red had just finished training Sting and Warrior, Angel of Death, Steve DeSalvo, 
whole bunch of guys, that first big class Red did ended up being some of the biggest stars in wrestling history with Sting and, Dis and uh, Warrior. Um, and uh, once again, the rest, as they say, is history. And right when Red met me, it was one of the first days I started working with Red, he said, you know, would you be all right if you had to go to Australia or Japan? And I said, fuck yeah. And uh, he got me a gig in Japan, like, a month and a half later, and I went to Japan. So, there you have it, my brother. That's a, that's the whole beginning of my wrestling career. That's insane. That is, I mean, that's something, isn't it? Like, let's let's be honest. That's, I mean, that's I mean, just honestly, a, how, how, a wild start. Sounds like it? something I fucking wrote for a movie script. But the truth of the matter is, it's just absolutely the truth. That's just the way it happened, and. It, it, you know, looking back in retrospect at it, I've, I've looked at it on several occasions, just gone, fuck, that was crazy. Especially, I know this sounds stupid, but, you know, at the time I had a poster in my bedroom of Farrah Fawcett that was like the biggest poster ever fucking sold. And there wasn't a kid in America that hadn't gratified himself to that fucking poster more than <laughs> once. So, when she ran into me, and I looked down at Farrah Fawcett's face, and she smiled up at me. I, you know, it's just one of those moments where I don't care who you are, you, you know. Like, well, that was fucking cool. <laughs> so, you, so you go to Japan, and you yeah. end up you do um, training with Chris Benoit in one of the uh, Japanese dojos for a bit. Was that correct? Yeah, it was. Uh... It was a very, 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 very unique uh, experience. Um, I met Chris in LA and uh, it was in July, 1st of August, end of July. And we met in LA and we ended up being roommates for almost a year and in the dojo. And uh, Brian Adams came in at the end of that time period and uh, was just an incredibly amazing time. I, I, once again, another experience I look back at, I have to pinch myself sometimes, you know? Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I'm a heat, I, I've always been a heat seeker, partly because I had my own ideas and a lot of, a lot of people don't want you to have your own ideas. They wanna give you your ideas, you know what I mean? And I'm just not that guy, never have been. And uh, I had a great time in Japan and because I had my own idea of what I wanted to be, that pissed him off when I told him I wanted to be Max Payne. In fact, I said I was going to be Max Payne to one of the reporters and they came and yelled at me, which is probably the biggest reason they didn't bring me back after that. I went back for a couple of tours when they had some Russians there and uh it went really good. I love Japan, but yeah, it was amazing. The time I spent with Chris there, um, I've said it before, was truly some of the most amazing time of my life. Very difficult time, but amazing nonetheless. Yeah, that that's um a lot of people say that the the time spent in Japan and the experience of it is something that money can't really buy you know it's it's one of those things that when you're in the wrestling business to spend time in those dojos is kind of invaluable you know um once again if 
when I, you know, it's one of those things, the dojo, just my dojo life is probably three or four chapters in a book because there was some fucking, there's some intense shit that happened, you know, stuff that you just, you can't help but go, again, did that really happen or was that a dream, you know? I mean, we had some fucking crazy shit happen. <laughs> um, the dojo, the dojo was one of the most amazing things of my life. I don't know any other way to put it. It was fucking harder than anything I'd ever, ever done. At the time, I had to walk away from my pregnant wife uh, with my only daughter. She was pregnant with my only daughter. And I, the only child I didn't, wasn't there for their birth was my daughter because I was in Japan. So it was a very difficult time, but a very worthwhile time. Incredible. If you don't mind me skipping uh, skipping on to something else, just uh, I don't mind it a little bit. Um, how did you get to? How did it come about to get into WCW? So uh, it's really funny because, like I was telling you before, you know when I started doing the Max Payne with the guitar gimmick, uh, we were in Hanover, and Otto Vons didn't didn't deal with Hanover, Germany. That was Peter Williams's baby. And he, he, him and Otto worked in conjunction with each other, but that was so that the boys had something to do in between the two major tours of Otto. And uh, so we were in Hanover for like two and a half months, I think it was a big, big tour there. And that's where I started the Max Payne, you know, guitar gimmick. And, uh, it was funny because Otto didn't want to use the guitar gimmick. And uh, Peter Williams actually said to Otto, he said, you're out of your fucking mind, man. This guy's selling tickets. Why wouldn't you do that? And then finally Otto relented and we had a fucking great season in Bremen and Hanover. And I think any of the boys would tell you that it had a lot to do with the fact that I brought something new to the table that the Germans fucking loved. They loved me playing the guitar. Hmm. and uh, we had a fucking great time at it and the last tour I, the last show I did was in Bremen um, I think it was on December 19th or 18th uh, 1990 and uh, 18,000 people and I, I played that night and my playing was much more successful than my match. I worked <laughs> with, uh, I worked with the, uh, oh, what the fuck was his name? But it wasn't, he partnered with a barbarian. What the fuck? Warlord. And we had a, a snoozer of a match, but the, the prelim was fucking great. The guitar thing went really well. And when we were done, Rip said, let me call, uh, Rip Rogers said, let me call uh, Bill Watts for you. And he did. And he took me to a phone booth in Germany. And we fucking got on the phone and he called Bill Watts. And Bill Watts got on the phone. He said, I'll get a hold of you and bring you to Atlanta as soon as we get through Christmas. And he said, I said, okay. And once again, the rest is history. He 
he called me and uh, he said, I want you to come because he knew I was a shooter on top of all of it. And Bill Watts was a, a big fan of shooters and uh, the rest is history. They, they invited me, he invited me down, gave me a contract. And on, I think it was, God, I think it was what, like the 14th of February when the Super Brawl was in 91. And um, that's when I started. When I played the national anthem at Super Brawl. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, it was. The, the, you know, I will tell you something, though. That was the beginning of the death of my career. Um, because they didn't have a fucking clue what to do with me. And the proof is in the pudding. If they were smart, what they would have done after I played the national anthem, or in the middle of playing the national anthem, They'd have sent a fucking big badass hill out there and knocked me yeah. out. We, you know what I mean? Yeah, we um we st we spoke about this before on a on a previous show where they fucked up majorly because you're coming out there playing the guitar. You're like the, a, a rock star that could have been the biggest face if they would have got some Ever. big bad art. Yeah, you know, and but they tried to push you as a heel. Um and it never I kind just of played the national anthem. Yeah, it yeah, was. You can't do that. Well. Yeah, yeah. I did it well, and instead of them going, you know, if I, like if that would have been Vince, I know Vince would have said, "Okay, you're going to go out there and play again, and I'm going to run three hills out there, and they're going to kick the fucking shit out of you. You're going to the hospital." Yeah. So the next time you come back, you're the biggest fucking baby face that ever hit fucking town. Yeah. It's, but the only it's not rocket science, man. Like it's, yeah, it's, I, I never understood that, and I went out there and wrestled fucking. Uh, Dustin and the fucking people sat on their hands for 15 minutes. It was like we were wrestling in a library. Yeah. And I'm like, how the, what the, f I mean, it was hard. That was really fucking hard, man. And uh, anyway, that, that's, that's the way it all started. Was, yeah. Was, was that Bill Watts' decision for you to play the, to play the anthem? I think I told him I could. And uh, he said, well, we'll have you open Super Brawl. I mean, I'm sure, I, I, think, I think I told him I could play it. And he said, I, I think his idea was, okay. Um, I don't remember 100% of the details of where the idea came from. Mm. I just knew I was practicing like a motherfucker because you don't fuck up the national anthem. You know what I mean? No, you killed so it, was, man. Yeah. Killed it. Oh, I fucking, I fucking was so nervous. That's a, you know, do remember that was a, my fucking first time playing in public. I played the national anthem on a pay per view. So there was probably at least a million plus watching, yeah. and then fucking, you know, uh, and then a live audience. So there's no fucking up the national anthem. You don't get mm, to start over. You know, is that Super Bowl one or two? Yeah, well, I think it was it, one, wasn't it? It might have been two. This one. Yeah, I think so. My because that's the show. That's the show we reviewed. I think, dude, yeah. when we were speaking about you being, you could have been like the biggest face ever. ever. Like, yeah. in St. Petersburg, Florida. No, this one was in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. That must have been two. Must have been two then, because yeah, we two. yeah. Because we we spoke about it, but I mean they they had you wrestling all of the the, the baby faces. I mean you you had um quite a few run-ins with Johnny B. Bad. Um, one of my fondest memories is is you like blasting him in the face with the bad <laughs> blaster, and you were you know you came out and you were like 
you said something like, oh, I've been in the lair or I've been in, you know, thinking yeah. about this and stuff. And like, I'm going to give you back your bad blaster. Yeah. You know, and you let him have it. Like, you know, it was, it was just, you know, I, we, we've said this with other people and, you know, we, we want to give you your flowers as well, because it was, you had everything, man. You were, you were a big dude and you could work your ass off. You knew exactly what you were doing in the ring. You were one of the most agile big guys that the business really had known. Um, they, they fucked up with your booking massively because your gimmick was so unique. The fact that, you know, and, you know, we talk about musicians in wrestling and you could talk about people always say about Jeff Jarrett or whatever, right? But is it true you actually had a real life band with the Road Dog? Is that true? So. <laughs> that's part of the reason I'm back. Um, oh. That's a big story, my brother. But I mean, you don't have to drop it on here, man. You know, if you're safe. No, I want to drop it. It's just not the problem. Is 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 I'm still I'm still not ready yet to let the whole thing go. And I'll come back and see you guys. It's no problem. We would love that, man. Oh, we yeah, would love absolutely. it, dude. Honestly, when, when when we finally get this thing rolling the right way, and the way I, you know, I I in order to do this thing, I, let me tell you something. I'm I'm really excited about this. So I'm. This is how I'll tease what what I'm about to do. The story of what I created is, it's one of those stories where I stood on the edge and looked down. I was right there. And so many things had to fall into place in order for me to uh, go to the next level. And I'll be honest with you. I, you know, uh, I'll remember uh, Eric Bischoff. We played for Eric Bischoff. And he said, you know, he didn't want to do it. He said, you got to go to Vince. I can't do this. And uh, there were a lot of wrestling things that happened at that time that sort of forced me in that direction. But I'd already started the process of building my dream, which was a band that I created. Now, I will tell you this part of the story. So remember the, the book I told you about? I was born and raised in a mental hospital. Um, my mother was the head attendant, head attendant of the uh, geriatric ward of the Utah State Mental Hospital in Provo, Utah. And uh, at a very early age, I spent lots and lots of time with her taking care of some very unwanted people. You know, the people that got left at the mental hospital were people who'd had massive strokes, were criminally insane, uh depression people who had were bipolar because they didn't have drugs to cure bipolarism yet and so they were just dropped off people and when they got old they went to the geriatric ward and my mother took care of them and my mother had a band and she'd play this band and when i watched people who were catatonic standing in the window you know doing this 
fuck, my mom would start playing the piano and they'd, they'd turn and look and they'd come over to the fucking piano and pick up a washboard or a kazoo or something. And my mom would sit there and play songs for an hour and they'd fucking do this shit with the fucking kazoo or the noisemaker or whatever. And as soon as she was done, they'd fucking walk right back over to the window. Wow. My mother was amazing. And one day there was a guy that we played pool with. I played pool with all the time. His name was Alan Faulkner. And uh, Alan uh, was a redheaded dude. And he had these, uh, you know, he smoked cigarettes and his skin was almost translucent. So he had nicotine stains on his fingers. You know, those people that get those real bad yeah. nicotine. And his skin, like I said, he was one of those redhead guys. And so I'd play pool and I couldn't wait to go play pool with Alan. But the funny part was my mom was never, never let me out of eye shot, you know? She was all, I could always see her back there. And on this particular day, we were driving home and I said to my mother, I said, can we, can Alan come and move in with us? You know, cause we, my mom would bring people home that, that needed help. And they, we had a, one of her best friends from the hospital lived with us for three or four years because my mom, she needed somebody to take care of her. And that's what my mom did. So we had a spare bedroom in my house and she lived with us. And uh, so I, you know, I said the same thing about Alan. And I think my mom realized it was time for me to grow up. And uh, she said to me, listen, son, Alan can never leave the hospital. And the reason why is because he raped his five-year-old grandson. And she explained it to me. And uh, at that moment in time, I started thinking about this thing called living insanity. And then the question I always ask people, is that three words or two words? And I always love that because at that moment in time, I discovered both of them. And so I tattooed that on my arm you can kind of see that's that's an lis and uh i i made it three words because technically but i love the idea of the fact that it could easily be two words because alan was two words he wasn't living insanity he was living insanity and so i always love that you know uh like bad magazine they used to do these pictures where they'd show you like the perfect American front view of how great life was. Then the camera would go around behind it. It showed the kids beating the fuck out of each other and the mom and dad injecting heroin. And, you know, it's just crazy shit like that. Mm. And that's, that's exactly the way, you know, I, I just started thinking about that. And from that time on, I always wanted to make this band. And I had a great friend in in school, he I've been friends with since I was in fourth grade, who's now in a Led Zeppelin, uh, a Led Zeppelin uh, tribute band that travels all over the world called No Quarter. And uh, I just decided I was going to put, I don't know why, don't ask me why. I just thought, I'll tell well, I'll tell you why. I wrote, the first song I wrote was about life on the road as a wrestler. 
And the reason I wrote it is because nobody had ever written a song of what it felt to be like a wrestler on the road, not a rock and roll guy, a wrestler on the road. I wanted music to speak the language of wrestling because I thought wrestling was fucking, I, I couldn't imagine rock and rollers lived any fucking crazier than wrestlers did. Mm -hmm. So I thought what a great medium to use to write music to. And I started writing songs and all of a sudden I decided, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna figure out how to put this band together and have the world's only professional wrestling band. And uh, so I started on the process. I accomplished everything I set forth to do. I bought a recording studio. I built a recording studio. I recorded an album. And right after we finished recording the album, I was let go from w WCW. Rude came to my house, got me up to Vince, and I took Road Dog with me. And Vince called me and said, Max, what do you want to do? And I said, um, bring Brian and I to a town. Let me show you what we can do. So Brian and I flew to one. This is during the time when Hogan had just fallen from grace and they were doing those little fucking raw shots in high schools. And, you know, they, they'd gone from filling arenas now down to high schools. And uh, I went there, I'll never forget. And Vince was, he, we went into this back area. It had curtains around it. And Vince was sitting there and I pulled out, uh, Robert Fuller had a, 1965 D35 Martin that his father had given him. And I took that guitar with me. Robert, let me borrow it. In fact, I recorded my whole album with that guitar. Robert, let me use it to record my album. Wow. And uh, I took that to New York with me. And Brian and I sat in front of Vince. And we played three songs. And when I fucking, when we finished, Vince looked at both of us and he goes, I'm in, where do we start? And the rest is uh, a very incredible story because it everything that could get in my way in the end got in my way. And uh, sadly, the world never got to hear the finished result. Well, I'm here to fix that. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I think the world's gonna fucking go nuts when I release this because nobody really knows the story about Brian. And I'm here to tell you, and I'm telling you, I'll, I'm saying this kind of publicly for the first time because I asked this question on one of the interviews that I, my first comeback interviews that I did um, at one of the virtuals I did. I said, does anybody out there know who my lead singer in my band was? And nobody knew. And I thought, holy fuck, the world is going to shit their fucking pants when they find out about this record. Um, it, it, it's, in my opinion, even if you even if you don't like the music, the fact that I, I think you will like the music. Um, it's just a good rock and roll record, and the timing is perfect because rock and roll and heavy metal is coming back now with a vengeance. 
people are finding the value again in guitar players and people that are genuine musicians, if you will, not the people who do any other kind of music aren't musicians. I would never say that. I just happen to be one of those guys that plays a guitar and anything else I need to. In fact, I played every instrument on my album because, except for the drums, um, because I had to, you know? And uh, I'm here to tell you uh, I'm so excited to finally release this because I mean this from the bottom of my heart. What you think of Road Dog as a wrestler, you will be fucking blown away at what an amazing front man he is as a musician and a singer. And I can't wait to finally give the world the opportunity to hear the music that we wrote, um, that we put together, um, and what I brought together to make this happen, I still look back at it like once again, you know, you guys, uh, I look back at it and I think, how in the fuck did I pull this off? You know, sometimes I just wake up in a sweat going, oh, well, oh, fuck, you know? Um, and at the time, everybody was against me. I'll never forget, you know, you were saying something, we were talking about, you know, they wanted to run me as a heel. And the reason they wanted to run me as a heel is I will define it for you. I'm going to never forget this. And Mick Foley was with me. We were riding with Bill Dundee, and I think it was either Greg Gagne or uh, one of the other office guys in the WCW. We were riding, we were on our way to Louisiana or something. And we were talking about being baby faces. And Bill Dundee said to me, he says, do you honestly think a big, ugly motherfucker like you could ever be a babyface?" And God bless Mick Foley. Mick Foley, I didn't even get a chance to respond. Mick Foley fucking piped right up and said, you know, Bill, I don't think it has anything to do with the, your looks or your body. I think it has to do with what the fans think of you. Who gives a fuck what you look like? If you're a babyface? you're a fucking babyface." You don't have to be fucking tan, ripped, and shredded to be a babyface. And if anybody ever proved that, it's fucking Mick. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so that was what I was dealing with the entire time. Uh, and then the rock and roll world let me down. I, I mean, this story, <laughs> this story involves Steve Miller, as in the Steve, Steve Miller. Miller. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he actually ended up being the one that cost me my wrestling career. Man, I'll take Max, when all of this comes out and you've released yeah. everything, you're going to have to come back on and do oh, it. I fucking up. will. You know yeah. I will. Because, well, first of all, I'm going to come back. I'll come back and I'll bring a song and we'll, we'll play it. And hopefully by then the album will be out yeah. so that everybody can listen. Because I, I really mean this. I think wrestling fans, I'm getting goosebumps because I know wrestling fans, they're going to fucking dig this album because it is, it is really, I mean, I know who, I love Chris Jericho and I love Fozzie, but they don't, their, their music isn't general. I mean, every, almost every word that I wrote is from the perspective of a wrestler. Um, I, I have fucking songs that are rebellion against wrestlers, against the, against the industry. I have a song that's just, I mean, there's so many songs that are just completely written about 
what it feels like to be a wrestler. And I think once the wrestling fans hear this, I'm hoping that it will translate to more than just wrestling fans, of course. But if a half a billion wrestling fans like the music, I'll be content with that. Well, sorry, Jordan, to jump in again quickly, but the 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 way I I I heard about your band for a really weird, obscure little interview with Mick Foley. So it was Mick was talking about you on an interview on a on a on a podcast on the WWE Network, funnily enough. So, really? Yeah. So he he and he was like really saying that you were you were underrated, you were fucking great in the ring, you were a collegiate wrestler, you were, you know, great. He said, but musically, he said, like, you know, wow. And he was and he said that obviously there was a situation. And like I say, I don't want to kind of if you if you're going to be telling this kind of story, but no, I want to hear it. He said something about the, there was a plan to it was so Jeff Jarrett was doing the singing, um, you know, be your baby tonight and all this kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. and and the the story was going to be that it wasn't actually him singing it. He was lip syncing, and it was going to be the road dog that it actually came out about that it was actually him singing, and there was going to be a whole kind of thing but it never happened something happened i like to say i don't i don't know too much about it I i'm sure you do the way you know so that was how i knew about road dog and yourself so and Mick Foley- like to, to be honest with you i'm very impressed because nobody's ever known that so it's okay because it's got to start coming out in order for me to make this happen people have to fucking know this story so eventually that, that, so let me tell you I will tell you the Steve Miller part of this because it will fill in some blanks. But I have to say something about Mick and Mick knows I love him. And it saved my life when I left the wrestling business. So I can't be angry at anybody. In fact, I just don't, I don't carry shit in my pockets. I'm not that guy. And I refuse to be around anybody in my life that doesn't make me happy and want to live and fucking smile because I've been around from a family standpoint, from a friendship standpoint, from, you know, I I just, I refuse to be around anything in my life ever again that isn't there to make me feel good because it's my choice. And I, I know this sounds cheesy and corny, but I hate hatred. And I don't, I don't want to be that guy ever again. I won't be that guy ever again. And I have no time to carry fucking shit in my pockets because I have too much to do now. But Mick, I don't know why. Um, So let me tell you the Steve Miller story to fill in the rest of those blanks. Sure. Because it won't make sense. None none of what happened to me is going to make sense until you hear the whole fucking story. But the Steve Miller part's really important because if you don't if you don't know it, you don't understand where I went because quite frankly, Mick and I were on fucking fire. And I never understood why one day he just came to me and says, Max, I'm gonna, I'm gonna part ways with you. I'm gonna go with Kevin Sullivan. And I'm like, I, I started crying. I'm, I'm ready to cry right now. And uh, I said, I said, Mick, why? And he goes, you know, I got some ideas. And I want to do this. And, and I'm like, 
okay, you know, what, what, are, what are you going to say? If somebody fucking says, hey, I don't, I don't, I'm going to move on without you. You know, I, uh, I mean, I just watched a bunch of our interviews the other day. I, I, I really realized, looked at those and thought, I don't understand how the wrestling business just didn't fucking take Nick and I, or Mick and I right then. And just because of fucking our interviews were flawless. We were just, we were a fucking great tag team. We just did so many wonderful things together. And uh, it, it, our interviews were great. And so I was, as you can imagine, I was crushed, fucking crushed. And uh, one day when I finished, we got a demo done of three songs. And one of my friends lived in Sun Valley. And he had gone into a 7-Eleven in Sun Valley and saw Steve Miller and realized Steve Miller lived in Sun Valley. And Steve Miller had his big fucking plantation and a studio he built, obviously, in Sun Valley. So I said to my friend, I said, look, when you go home, take our tape and put it in his mailbox and let's see what happens. And one day I'm sitting in my house and the phone rings. Now, this is before cell phones. <laughs> this, is, this is probably before caller ID for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, I answer the phone and uh, this guy on the other end says, uh, Max? I said, yeah. He said, it's Steve Miller. I said, sure it is. I thought it was one of the boys fucking with me, right? <laughs> sure it is, asshole. He goes, no, this is Steve Miller. And I said, shut the fuck up. He goes, no. He goes, listen, I listened to your songs. You want to come to Idaho? I want to talk to you. And uh, I said, fuck yeah. So we flew to Idaho, me and my friend, and we went and met with Steve. And uh, Steve had always wanted to be a wrestler. You're kidding. No. Fucking. <laughs> he says, I want to be involved. And I said, okay. And uh, he said, I want to be your manager. And I said, fuck. Well, let me think. Okay. <laughs> so he, he gave us tickets. Mick went with us. Nick, Mick, myself, my other partner, we all went to fucking see Steve play at a fairground in, uh, in Georgia. And after the show, we went back and fucking met Steve and Mick was with us and everything. And when Mick came and said, Max, I'm done with you, I, I never fucking understood that. And I hope Mick doesn't see this as negative because I, I don't look at it as negative in my life now. In fact, I honor Mick that he had the courage to call me and be honest with me and say, Max, I'm sorry. So here's what happened. So the whole Jeff Jarrett thing went down. We're on our way. J.J. Dillon calls me on the phone. He said, okay, we're ready to get a hold of Steve. WrestleMania 11 was when the whole fucking shit was going to go down. And uh, he said, we're ready to get a hold of Steve. Um, give me his number. I'll call him. So I gave him his number. About 10 minutes later, J.J. Dillon called me back and he says, 
Is this some kind of fucking rib? I said, what do you mean? He goes, I just talked to Steve Miller and he said, no. I said, what? He said, he said, no, he doesn't want to be involved. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And he said, and because he doesn't want to be involved, we think you lied to us. So after your next Europe tour, we're letting you go. Fuck, you know. So as you can imagine, I was fucking tore up. Then Vince put me in Madison Square Garden to play my guitar in front of Madison Square Garden with a guy trying to use Madison Square Garden's PA to play in front of 18,000 people with a guy who had a fucking, basically a bar room fucking uh, PA system and shit. Mm. And I failed miserably and I got booed in Madison Square Garden when I played the guitar. It was the first time ever and it was because I couldn't fucking hear. These people started screaming when I started playing and I couldn't fucking hear my own guitar. So therefore I sucked miserably. And it, it crushed me as you can imagine. Yeah. And then I went to Europe the last time and I thought, well, if I'm going for the last time at the time, there was a very, this is, this is just who I am. So this, I hope you understand the reason I'm telling you this is not, I'm getting somewhere. Just so just bear with me for a second. Keep going, man. So I uh, I walk out the door. It's October 3rd, 1995. The morning OJ Simpson was found innocent. That's why I remember it. And it was my birthday at the time. So I go on my tour to Europe. And every single night I was playing the guitar before my match. And tearing the fucking house down, just destroying it. And I don't, you guys know, when the fucking Germans are into it, they start chanting, Zu Gaben, Zu Gaben, Zu Gaben. And if you haven't ever felt that or you haven't ever heard that, I'm telling you, man, the first time I fucking heard that, I, I'm getting the most intense goosebumps right now because it is just when I remember I told you the story about playing in Bremen before my match with, with the Warlord. When I turned my guitar down, there was this brief moment where the sound had to finish dissipating through the building. And there was a dead silence. And I went, oh, fuck. And then instantly the roof came off the house and they started chanting to Gobbin. And uh, every night on that tour, I took my video camera. I took a video camera with me. And I thought at the time there was a show called Road Rules on, had just come out on MTV. It was the first, um, what you would call uh, like the reality TV. It was the first reality TV series was Road Rules. So I thought I'm gonna take my fucking camera with me and shoot a behind the scenes WWF movie so people can feel what it feels like. But mostly the reason I took my camera is I wanted to prove to Vince that what I was doing, people were loving and you're missing out on it. Halfway through that tour, 
I was wrestling Rad Radford every night. Halfway through that tour, I have all this on videotape too, so <laughs> eventually the proof will be in the pudding. The we've we've heard about the tape. We, we, <laughs> we've so, heard about the tape. Yeah, I'm still wrestling, no pun intended, with how, how I'm going to deal with that, but it, it's going to come out sooner or later. Um, Owen and Louie were fucking around, and Owen sprayed cologne in Louie's eyes accidentally. Right. And Louie couldn't see. His eyes swelled. He was allergic to whatever was in the cologne. His eyes swelled shut. They took him to the hospital. They had to give him a fucking shot. <laughs> Couldn't work. Everybody was getting ready to go out and do a fucking uh, a Royal Rumble, right? And I said to Tony Gurria, I said to him, Tony, you do realize I'm the only wrestler in history that can give you 20 minutes without an opponent, right? And he looked at me and he went, what do you mean? I said, let me go out and play. What do you got to lose? Okay. So every night from that point forward, instead of having a match with Rad Radford, you would have thought the boys would have fucking wanted to blow me on Main Street because none of them had to work twice again. <laughs> so I went out every night for 20 to 25 minutes. I just fucking went out and free jammed. And the fucking crowd went nuts every night. And I have it on videotape to prove it. And my last show was in Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, I fucking tore the house down, partly because I played smoke on the water. And uh, as you know, smoke on the water was written in Switzerland. Right. So let's fucking love it anyway. And that riff will do it too, man. Right. So they fucking <laughs> loved it. And they're losing their minds. I played two songs and I left the ring every fucking night with the Germans chanting or, you know, the German speaking audience is chanting Sue Gobbin and I have it on videotape to prove it. And I walk back after that fucking, I'm, I'm literally walking out of a fucking ring and Kevin Nash goes, yeah, I don't think this is going to work, Max. And I'm like, what? Don't, are you not, not hearing that right there? I mean, you're not wrestling a fucking battle royal tonight because I just played for 25 fucking minutes. Yeah, you, you know, this shit's just not getting over. And I'm like, okay. And so I went home and that was the last time I ever played. Now, about three or four years went by. That's more than that, maybe 10. And one day, my daughter runs outside. I'm on the back, getting ready to barbecue. And then my daughter runs outside and she goes, Daddy, Daddy, Mick Foley's on the phone. I said, shut up. She goes, no, he's on the phone. I said, okay. Go in and have to, Mick, what the fuck is going on? How are you doing, buddy? It's been, it's been forever. He said, Max, I need you to just shut up and listen to me. I'm like, what? Because I need you to just listen. And I said, okay. He said, I called to apologize to you. I said, apologize? He goes, yeah. He goes, when you started telling me about Steve Miller, 
and all this shit was going to go down in the WWF. And then I saw it didn't go down. I thought you were a liar. They thought, I thought you were just another one of the boys, fucking full of shit, who didn't know his head from his ass, who was fucking making up this bullshit story so you could get ahead. And Mick actually called me to see if I could help him in the WWF, but I just fucking basically been told I was walking. And I told him that. I said, Mick, I said, I'd love to help you, but I said, I got to be honest with you right now. I don't think the WWF is going to listen to a fucking thing I say. Mick says, I thought you were a liar, Max. And he said, cut to 10 years later, I got invited on Jimmy Kimmel's show. I said, yeah. He goes, uh, guess who was on Jimmy Kimmel's show with me? I said, I don't know. He said, Steve Miller. Oh, fucking A. Did you? He said, shut up and listen, Max. I said, okay, I'm listening, Mick. He said, I'm trying to fucking apologize here. I said, okay. He said, I went out, when I saw Steve was going to be on that show, he said, I was bound and determined to prove to the fucking world what a liar you are. And I said, okay, what happened? He goes, uh, my plan didn't quite work out the way I'd hoped it would. <laughs> so he goes on, Jimmy Kimmel. I have the tape. If you have any curiosity, it's out there. He goes on Jimmy Kimmel's show and he says, uh, yeah, my one of my partners said he knew you and uh, was going to record an album and you were going to come and be his manager and everything. And Steve proceeds to tell the story. I told Mick. And I said, I guess I said to Mick at that time, I said, I guess it's just beyond belief that there is a wrestler out there that doesn't lie, isn't it? I mean, since technically what we do is a lie, then every wrestler is a liar. And uh, Mick said, I'm sorry. And he sent me tapes. He sent me all the tapes from Jimmy Kimmel to show me the interview. And uh, I always loved Mick with all my heart. It was, I tell you, as you can imagine, it, it was devastating. I don't hold that against Mick, like I said. I, the fact that I'm still alive and am now going to be able to release the album, I hope that sometime Mick and I in the future can get together because I think, I think at a wrestling show or something, I think fans would fucking lose their mind to see Mick and I finally back together again. Um, but my destiny wasn't to be a great wrestler for whatever that reason was. And I had to accept that because at every fucking stage, you know, let me tell you this. And I, I've said this story before. You guys have heard it and I'll say it again. There were two people that met me after I played the national anthem that night in Asheville. When I walked off the stage, the first one was Harley Race. And Harley Race had fucking, you don't have to believe me when I tell you this, but I'm telling you, I, I don't lie. Harley Race had fucking tears pouring down his face. And he stuck his hand out to shake my hand. And anybody who knows Harley Race is that motherfucker, when he shook your hand, he wasn't giving you the office shake like the boys do. Mm -hmm. That motherfucker shook your hand like he was a goddamn hay farmer. 
He shook my hand so gentle and he looked at me crying tears fucking running down his cheeks and he goes, oh my fucking God, you really played that. And I, I was flabbergasted. I'm like, why wouldn't I have? I, I guess because just like I read the other day, Wayne, Wayne Ferris is on the top 10 list of greatest guitar players ever in the wrestling business. He couldn't fucking carry a fucking tune in a bucket, Wayne couldn't. He didn't know how to play a single note on a guitar. And, and so it was just, those are the kinds of things that as, a, as somebody, I didn't think of myself as legit. I just did it. It wasn't like I was going, yeah, I'm legit. And then the next person right after him that met me was Chris Benoit. Chris was crying too. And um, it was just a time in my life where, you know, I, for whatever reason, that wasn't my destiny. And I knew I had to accept that. But I also believed that sooner or later, someday the opportunity would come back around, you know, for me to finally, that somebody would be interested enough in where the fuck did Max Payne go? And now these stories are starting to get out about what really happened. <sighs> I've really never told the Brian James story yet either, the road dog story. Uh, I don't have time to tell that one today. It's a fucking great story, the whole how he and I came to, together. Um, I will tell you another secret about my band. Do you know who my rhythm guitar player is? Please tell us. <laughs> You're not going to believe it. The third man, Nick Patrick. The, you're kidding me! No way. Oh, it, it's so it's so weird because when we do these interviews, we watch back a load of stuff, and it was after you'd blasted bad Johnny B bad in the face, and the Z Man came down, and you had him in the painkiller. Yeah, and it was Nick Patrick that was coming came down to yeah. try and get you off of. The Z-Man. We were laughing so fucking hard. He was fighting. And Nick, that fucker, when he'd come to do shit like that, he'd try to make me laugh. You know? And we fucking, Nick and I, fuck, dude. We did the road like you wouldn't believe, man. We wrote songs together. We fucking, Nick is an integral part of, of that whole thing, man. I mean, in fact, it was Nick and I that started, you know, when, when I met Nick, that's when I, Meeting Nick and playing, Nick and I used to go to his ring. His dad had a ring in uh, in uh, Jonesboro and uh, where he trained kids. And we went to, that's where we went and we'd take amplifiers down there and we'd go, we'd go fucking jam for hours and hours. You'd get fucking high and fucking party and fucking just jam like a motherfucker. And then we'd go on the road and we'd write songs. In fact, <laughs> motherfucker. You know, there's a bridge that goes across the Mississippi River just outside of Mobile, Alabama. And it's fucking huge. I mean, this fucking bridge is, you know, they got to get ships underneath it. So it's one of those big fucking arching bridges. And I had this black Lincoln that Marty Gennetti had given me when I was in Memphis in 1987. And I'd taken it home with me and rebuilt it. And I brought it back to the south with me. And that's why I travel. In fact, here, I'll show you a picture of the car. Marty fucking, uh, that's a funny, you want to talk about a funny fucking story. 
is when this car pulled up and Marty Jannetty fucking got out. The fucking hubcaps fell off of it. It went <laughs> and fucking blew up. And I said, can I have that? And he said, yeah, you can. Kicked it a couple of times. <laughs> I took it and baby, I, I'm a, I've been a mechanic since I was three years old. So I love, I love cars. I love, you know, anything to do with automobiles. Uh, I just fucking, I grew up in the auto world. And so I just rebuilt my Lincoln, put a new motor in it, had new upholstery put on it, and uh, did the road. And then anybody who was in the WCW with me, Tex, Shanghai, Divad, uh, Regal, Chris, Benoit, they all, they all knew my car. They, I mean, everybody wanted to ride with me because it was a Lincoln. So, uh, this, so I just traveled around in this, this fucking car. And uh, let me see, I got, let me find this picture real quick. Whilst, whilst you're looking for the picture, Max, I want to, uh, you've mentioned Destiny quite a few times. And yeah. when I was, when I was looking back at some of your stuff in, you know, WCW and stuff like that, when you came out at Super Brawl in 94, I could have sworn your destiny was to be one of the biggest baby faces WCW was going to have. Was the, that the night? Was that the night? Did I play that night? No, you cracked one of the nasty boys with, a, with the guitar. That's, that, that, that was when Kevin took over. Yeah. That was the first night Kevin took over. But the pop that you got for cracking, I think it was Sags, with the guitar was unreal. It was, it was off, the, off the chain. It was so impressive and you know that it's funny you say that because there's a fan out there that took a picture right when i fucking nailed i think it was was it sags or was it not i think it was sags yeah was it sags when i hit him the guitar had actually collapsed over his head but hadn't exploded yet and they caught the photo right when it fucking hadn't blown the guitar up yet and I've been saying, anybody, if you're listening to that, to this, and you've got to pick that picture, I'd really love to have a copy of that. And uh, I know that guy's going to show up back in my life one of these days. Well, and we'll put the call out. And maybe when we put this interview out, maybe he'll be like, oh, shit, Max. Yeah. Brown. You know, there's the car. 1979 oh, Lincoln Continental Town Coupe. Man, that is one sexy motor vehicle. So one one night I had uh, I had Mike Hegstrand in there with me, uh, Hawk, and uh, <laughs> we were fucking. He was fucked up, and I just barely put new upholstery in it. And he goes, "Give me a cigarette, pain." I said, "No, you're not having a cigarette. You're fucking. You're gonna fucking drop it." No, I won't. Bigger than fucking shit. I gave him a fucking cigarette and he dropped it and it fucking just sat between his legs and smoldered and fucking put a big fucking smoke burn in my fucking brand new upholstery. <laughs> I don't have that car anymore. Someday I will rebuild it because actually uh, I have actually, I have a movie script uh, that I've written that I really want to produce soon. Uh, fiction, of course of course about the wrestling business and uh i i one of these days i'm you know i'm gonna i'm gonna produce that too but it's now that i'm now that i'm i'm back 
I got a lot to do. And that's one of the things that I that I absolutely have to do. So, so did I forget to say something? Did I did I did I forget to say something that, that you guys asked me a question about? Did I not answer? I don't think not, so. So, sometimes well, I get carried is, away. So is the term fiction, of course, the name of the screenplay. No, it's not. I, I won't tell you the name of it quite yet because <laughs> the name of it is not too far from fiction, though. It's it's really when when you hear the name of my movie, it makes perfect sense. Now, let me put it that way. Uh, well, uh, go on, Dave. Yeah. Sorry, who? Uh, any idea who has the guitar? The uh, the famous guitar that um, you played in the WWF. You know, uh, let's put the call out for that because I'd like to have that back too. It's probably in their fucking archives, man. They've got everything in the... It's probably in the fucking warehouse somewhere. Or, you know, maybe whoever's got it. You know, know, they've been doing these shows where they take the guys and they go and find these, like, these kind of... These items that are, like, really important to certain times, you know? So they had, you know, the first cane mask and all this. And, you know, they had... The Undertaker go and look for these bits and bobs and stuff. You know, if it isn't already in their archives, I would love to see you go and meet the guy who's got the guitar and then, you know, you shredding it away in his house or whatnot. You know, this is the stuff that, you know, I know you said that your destiny wasn't to be a great wrestler, but I think myself and Jordan will both disagree with you on that one. The fact that you were, dude, you were a great wrestler. The fact that people... Now, if you know about wrestling and you look into how the business is, we know about the fucking politics. We know about how booking can fuck people over. We know about this, man. We, you know, we spoke with Alex Wright and we were talking about how the booking around Berlin was just fucked, where they tried to make it so that it was a different person rather than kind of a change of of Alex and how he was. You know, we said, look, we know if they would have booked it differently, it would have been better. And Alex isn't one for holding grudges. He's a very uh, diplomatic person like yourself. He's a good man like yourself. You know, so you don't look back and go, yeah, man, those fucking assholes, they fucked me over and blah, blah, blah. You know, so it, we know about this, but the fact that we we still remember you, Max, with, with fond memories. We know your matches were great when you were in the ring. The stuff you were doing with Mick was great. Even when you're on your own, it was great. Your your gimmick was kind of, it was in and of itself something that was just great. Um, you know, but, that, that's the thing that was so hard for me is because I didn't understand. Every time I went out and did anything, the fucking crowd response was, you know, I was playing one night. They, they we were at a, it was a, I've seen the video, so I don't know where, I don't know which show it was. One of the pay-per-views, they, something went wrong. And they said, Max, will you go out and play your song for the crowd? And I'm like, like now? And they go, yeah, you got five minutes. And I'm like, well, fuck no pressure, you know? And I said, okay, because I wanted to get my fucking gimmick over, right? Yeah. So I go out there, and I, I didn't have a monitor. I didn't have – I just went out there with the fucking – what I had and played in front of this house crowd. And once again, when I turned my guitar down, the fucking crowd went 
nuts. They just went fucking nuts. And I would like to say, well, like I've told you the truth about what happened to me in Madison Square Garden when I got booed. I got booed one other time because I tried to make my guitar work and it wouldn't work. And I fucking called the town I was in the wrong name. I, <laughs> I was my own worst enemy in a lot of ways, too. I have to be honest about that. A lot sure. of ways I was my own worst enemy because I was a fucking heat seeker that wasn't afraid to do shit. Other people like my movie, you know, they. It's so funny. They all fucking, everybody likes to fucking talk shit about it, but they none of them wasted a fucking second uh, performing on camera. And that's from fucking Kevin Nash all the way down to the fucking guys that were building the ring for us. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I never understood that. I, I, I guess, I guess what really blew me away is I never understood even Vince why wouldn't greed kick in at some point? If you're hearing a guy getting cheered for what he's doing out there, you know, I'll never forget, I heard Bruce Pritchard was talking about the worst gimmicks ever in the WWF. And Man Mountain Rock was one of the gimmicks he was talking about. And I'll be honest with you, Man Mountain Rock was a very difficult gimmick for me because it wasn't my idea, none of it. And I should have stood up. This is one of those times in my life I should have stood up and said, no, I'm Max Payne. And I'm going to do Max Payne. And if you don't want Max Payne, then I guess I'll just go home. I should, you know, maybe I should have done that. I don't regret doing Man Mountain Rock. Um, but it certainly wasn't Max Payne. And I never understood. I mean, even Vince. You know, one of the reasons Vince let me go is because he said, somebody got to Vince and said, oh, fuck. You know, he had friends in the music industry. And they told Vince, oh, you don't want to be in the music industry, Vince. You're crazy. Don't get involved in that. And I looked right at Vince and I said, well, fuck, of course they're saying that to you, Vince. You think they want you as competition? You uh -huh. think the fucking record industry wants a guy who's on fucking television all over the world to be their competition? You don't need the record company. You are the record company. If you put my fucking record on your television every week, you'll make a gazillion fucking dollars off of it. It was around 97 that they started bringing out their own music, didn't they? They started bringing out the CDs. Right, exactly. Yeah. They started releasing the albums and everything else. And get, just like we were saying, they ended up doing it themselves anyway. Being their own record company, selling their own records and doing all that. But somebody died in Vince's ear. And maybe it was because of me. I don't know. But it always just fucking broke my fucking heart. You know, I, I couldn't understand. I guess that's the hard part about being trying to be a musician and a wrestler. This is pretty tough. You know, Tex said to me one time, uh, Dennis said to me, said, you know, Max, uh, you're in a fucking amazing musician. He said, I'm just afraid one day, day you're going to have to decide that you can't serve two masters. And uh, I said, why? Why do I have to? Why can't I? My whole idea. So Bruce Pritchard's on talking about the Man Mountain Rock gimmick. This is a classic example of what I'm talking about. And he doesn't talk shit about me as a wrestler. He doesn't talk shit about, he said that, you know, by the time Max got here, he was kind of tired. And all he cared about was, be, was being behind the scenes. Why is that a bad thing? Every fucking wrestler in the WWF, when they retire from the ring, what do they do? 
They yeah. go fucking work behind the fucking scenes, right? Yeah, yeah. All I ever wanted to do was be like the fucking uh, like the fucking Paul Schaefer of the wrestling industry. I wanted to be the house band so that we played shit live. Second of all, I wasn't, I, you know, I know I don't care if Jim Johnston's still there or any either. I, I hated the sound Jim Johnston represented me at as Man Mountain Rock. It wasn't my sound. It wasn't who I am. Jim's and gone. I, Jim's not I, there anymore. Is he? Well, then I can talk freely about what a fucking dickhead he was. <laughs> I'll talk, I'd talk freely about him if he was still there because obviously the WWF, everybody in the world could apologize to them and go back to work for him. But I guess I was such an evil motherfucker that they could never, ever call me on the phone ever again. None of the people I helped in the wrestling business, not one of those fuckers could call me and say, hey, Max. And you know what? Honestly, I'm glad they didn't because if they would have, I'd be dead. And now I'm not dead. Now I'm still alive. And I've got maybe that much of a brain on me in my head up there um, that I can avoid the trappings of that kind of a lifestyle and actually get some of these things accomplished that, that need to be accomplished. I got a lot accomplished while I was there, but I never understood why nobody didn't have dollar signs in their eyes with me. Like the night at Super Bowl, that's the class like we talked about. Mm. Why in the fuck didn't a fucking booker backstage, fucking Dusty, fucking uh, Eric, any of them say, fuck run a hill out there and cut that motherfucker off. Mm. You'll have more heat than you've ever had in the history of the wrestling business. Can you imagine if somebody would have came out there while I was playing the national anthem and fucking knocked me out? Oh, it's a fucking incident, isn't it? It's yeah, that's, that's, it's, that's a, dude, that would have got fucking worldwide television. Yeah. And now one of those stupid fuckers could see that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I, I, that's the part that just broke my heart. How did not dollar signs overwhelm your fucking insecurity that there was nobody else that could do my job? And I think maybe that's what they were worried about. You know, everybody else in those organizations, uh, somebody else could put your tights on and go do your job. And, you know, Vince was pretty famous for that. And I wasn't that guy. And I, maybe that's not the reason. I don't know what the reason was. Maybe I was just such an incurable asshole that nobody could deal with me. And so therefore it was best that I leave. That, that, I don't think that's fair, but I would take that. But you know what? Like I said, I, I can look back and be bitter or I can look back at it as a blessing. And I choose to look at it as a blessing because now I get to tell a story. And had I stayed, it probably wouldn't have came out and I probably would have died. So, I, I think part of it is as well, your gimmick and, and, and what you did was so different to kind of anything else that had ever really been done. You know, even, you know, even you can't even draw a parallel to fucking Honky Tonk Man because Honky Tonk Man, yeah, he had a guitar, but no, he couldn't play. It was completely different. It was like a a rip-off kind of Elvis kind of thing. Well, the rip on Elvis is what it was. Yeah, that's right. They took him to Sun Studios and fucking he said, I'm not going to sing in that microphone that Elvis spit all over. Yeah. It was a rip. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think the fact that you were so new, unique in, in, in what you were doing and the fact that you could legitimately, because in wrestling, 
Like so, everything's a fucking work. But the fact right. that you could legitimately go out there, play the national anthem, it kind of like it must have blown their minds to the point of like they really didn't know what to do with you. They really didn't know how to capitalize on it because, but personally, I believe you were way before your time, way before your time. You were in a world. You were in the early nineties where they they couldn't really conceive in their old booking way of thinking of how to deal with you and how to do it and because that old mindset of dundee when he was talking about a big hairy guy big you know, motherfucker like you he's never gonna be a fucking baby face when the fact is you were staring them in the face as a baby face anyone now when we're looking back on it you know we can see dude what the fuck they were dumb to not see what was there but it was just that old school mindset of no this guy's a big chunky guy you know let's just fucking he, he, he's a heel you maybe, know maybe, was, maybe as well you weren't friends with the right people you weren't too friendly with the right people well, that, that, there's no doubt about it. that that was my biggest problem my biggest problem was is and you'll see you know when i release this movie and i'm going to release it one way or another, I'm going to release it. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but it's going to come out. And it, the, the great part is all the fucking people that have been sitting back there, once again, doubting me, are going to have to fucking eat some crow again. Oh, and by the way, you know the album I told you that I, uh, that I recorded? I just discovered, as I'm going through my archives, getting ready to release the album, I shot an entire movie of the making of the album in my studio with Brian, with Nick, and the other two guys that are in the band. And I'm here to tell you, when you hear the music, so when I release the album, I'm going to release the movie that goes with it. And I'm telling you, wrestling fans around the world, you guys are going to have fun in a way you... <laughs> You've never seen it before. It's just a fucking kick in the pants. And that's the part, you know, I, I don't care. I, like I said, you know, you guys know who Carol Burnett is by chance. She's a real famous television star in the United States. Right. She, had a show, she had a show here for years. You guys are way too young to know her. But she had a really famous television show here called The Carol Burnett Show for years and years and years. It was basically just a variety show. And she was just... She was really funny. She was a lot like Lucille Ball. In fact, Carol Burnett had tried out for the show. Do you know what I Love Lucy is? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Well, of yeah. course, everybody knows that, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's like the biggest television show in history. Carol Burnett tried out for the part of Lucy. And she didn't get it, obviously. Lucille Ball got it. Hmm. <clears throat> and when she was leaving, Carol and Lucy were really good friends. Lucille Ball were really good friends. And Carol was crushed and she congratulated Lucille Ball. And when she congratulated Lucille Ball, Lucy started to cry and said, Carol, listen, I want you to know something. You're amazing. It's just not your turn yet. And, and Lucy was right on. 10 years later, Carol Burnett was the biggest television star in Hollywood. And that's the way I feel. It wasn't my turn then because I would have been just another fucking statistic and all the things I did would have died with me. And 
I think when you see what I when I release my album, um, you'll see what a tragedy that would have been. Because like I said, I promise you guys, one of these days you're going to be riding down the road and you're going to be listening to this album and hear the words that were written by wrestlers. Um, and I have one dream, one big dream, and I know it's going to I keep having it. I'll tell you why I know it's going to happen. The reason I learned how to play the guitar is because when I, on December 21st, 1974, I went to a concert at a ballroom in Salt Lake City. You know who the band was? Kiss. Wow. They had just put out, uh, I think their third album, Dress to Kill, 1974, 1975, I'm sorry, 75, I was 14 years old. I went and saw Kiss, went home, and I was just fucking floored. Ballroom held a thousand people. It's just a little teeny place. They, they weren't superstars yet by any means. Um, and I'll tell the whole story about Kiss at another time because yeah, the way yeah. I discovered them was really amazing. And uh, anyway, I went home that night and I had this dream that I was standing on stage with Kiss and Ace Frehley took his guitar off and stuck it in my hands. And when he did, you know, I could tell it was hot. It was live, right? I'm scared fucking shitless. And I look out at the crowd and the whole crowd looks at me like, all right, big man, throw down. And I'd wake up fucking sweating going, oh, God damn, I can't play. Fuck. So I had this dream every fucking week of my life until December 19th. 1990, when I wrestled the warlord that night and I played in front of 18,000 people, that second when I turned the volume down of my guitar and the song had ended and I looked up at the people and nobody had done anything yet, it was just like that moment in my dream where the crowd's going, all right, fucker. And then the crowd popped and I went, wow, I did it. I did it. I played in front of fucking 18,000 people and they cheered for me and I never had the dream again. Now I have a dream of playing in front of Madison Square Garden and this time I won't be blue. I promise you. I, wow. I genuinely, yeah, I hope that ha comes true, that one, because, you know, it's the perfect sort of redemption arc, isn't it, to go back and do it again. Well, and, you know, quite frankly, you know, here's the amazing part about living in sanity. We only played together as a band one time. One fucking time. And that was for Eric Bischoff and all the brass at WCW. And like I said, when we finish, Eric goes, you guys are amazing, but we can't do it. I, I'm not. I don't know. Part of the reason he didn't want to do it is because of what I did to Nobbs. Um, Nobbs went out of his way. Nobbs had a lot to do with uh, burying me as well. And that's okay, because anybody who fucking knows Nobbs and knows the truth about, you know, I heard Arn Anderson talk about that that was the worst injury he'd ever seen, and that was because that was Nobbs' fault, and I'll 
stick by that to the day I die. And I'd fucking challenge Brian right in front of his fucking face. He he knew more than me, and he decided midway through that throw, he was going to run the fucking throw. And I told him in the dressing room that night, you're either going to go with me or you're going to get hurt. And he made his own decision, and the rest is history. But I'm at a point in my life now where I got nothing to lose. I have a great home, great life, great wife, but I have a story to tell. And I think, I think because I failed, because I failed as a wrestler, if you will, I didn't fail as a wrestler. I get that. I mean, yeah. you know, my family's told me over and over again, talk, are you ribbing me? You've been to the show, dude. What the fuck are you talking about? Um, yeah, I get that, but I didn't, I didn't take it. I didn't get to where I'd hoped it would go. Um, so I could be nothing but a musician the rest of my life. Now, uh, that opportunity has presented itself again. And not only for my sake, but for Nick Patrick's sake, for Brian's sake, for my drummer's sake, uh, I want the world to fucking hear a living insanity. I want the world to at least, even if we never get to play live again, um, if we never even have the opportunity, okay, I'll live with that. But let's let the people, let's let the wrestling fans decide now. And that's what I'm going to do. It isn't going to be Vince's choice. It isn't going to be Eric Bischoff's choice. It's going to be, you know, I heard that fucking Eric Bischoff talking about Mick Foley or talking about us the other day. And they were, they, they actually were talking about, uh, the match, the Chicago street fight. And Eric didn't like it. And he didn't mention me, he didn't mention Nobbs, and he didn't mention SAG. The only person he talked about was Mick Foley. And the reason the only person he talked about was Mick Foley is because out of everybody in that group, the biggest legend is who? Mick yeah. Foley is absolutely the biggest fucking legend in fucking, he's, he's up there with all time biggest legends in WWF history, and rightfully so, Mick's an amazing, an amazing human being. I love him with all my heart and always have and always will. I hold no animosity towards him, and I, I look forward to these next two big events I got coming up. I look forward to seeing him in the near future so bad so that hopefully the hatchet's buried and we can move forward as the good friends that we were then because I have no animosity towards Mick. In one, in one way, he was part of saving my life. And uh, I have to think of it that way. And I have to thank God every day, the universe, whatever you want to call it, that I'm still here and that wrestling fans, wrestling fans are finally going to get to hear um, a truly amazing thing that never happened. Well, we we look forward to that yeah. with with you know we're excited to hear about it on the show, and I'm sure you're aware that um, that Road Dog has recently not yeah. now he's not working with the WWF anymore WWE sorry. Um, so you're here to find I do the same thing all the time. I can't. It's so fucking hard for me to call it <laughs> WWE. In fact, I don't. 
Yeah, we, I mean, we, we watch a lot. I mean, predominantly our podcast started by watching old WCW events and old WWF events and reviewing them retrospectively and just talking about them for the next generation of fans. Really? But um, Yeah, that's what we do, really. But that's awesome. We, we started interviewing wrestlers because we, you know, like I say, we trained for a little bit. Um, but we we kind of really intrigued with that side of it. And I'll tell you what, Max, like one of the biggest things for wrestling fans is, is fucking real life documentaries. If you look at Beyond the Map, okay, Beyond yeah. the Map is probably one of the most iconic, um, you know, things that have ever come out of the wrestling business. Um right. Wrestling with Shadows. Wrestling with Shadows is the one. Wrestling with Shadows. You know, and look at what... Uh, Wrestling with Shadows is, is, is absolutely huge. Um, and Dark Side of the Ring. Um, yeah. The Dark Side of the Ring. We are obsessed to the point... Of, it is obsession with just wanting to know what is going through your you guys' heads when you're, when you're doing what you're doing. And the stories, you know, there's nothing more... Uh, intriguing than the real life behind, you know, the 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 story. The the say I hate to say it, but the real life behind the fake stories because absolutely, you know, it is more intriguing than like we've got a saying. You know, I'm sure it's in America. You couldn't fucking write this shit. No. You could not write no. this shit. You know, no. it is just. You know, and to well, look at my, a classic example is the fucking story I was telling you about. You know, here I am on my last tour in the WWF, and I know it. And all I wanted to prove to Vince was, dude, I don't need to wrestle. Just let me be. You know, we can fucking do angles and shit and yeah. have guys come out and fuck with me. And, we, you know, I'll take a bump and, you know, fucking gig, whatever the fuck you need me to do. Yeah. But fucking let me be a musician. Let the heat get on me because or let the fucking heels get heat on me. Because they're trying to fuck with me. But for some reason, they couldn't see that. But here I am on my last tour. And Louie gets fucking cologne sprayed in his eyes. So I have, you know, and I just don't know why. I just had went to Tony and I said, went to Tony Green and I said, you know, I'm the only wrestler you've ever had or maybe you ever will have that can give you 25 minutes without an opponent. And he called Vince and Vince said, okay, Max, do it. And I did it. And that's that's what you're talking about. And when you when people see this fucking movie, brother, that's what I'm saying. So this movie's gonna come out one way or another. And let me tell you what's gonna happen. Um no, I need to keep that part, but no, let me just put it this way. Sure. Just, I couldn't agree with you more. And I will tell you the movie that I have, all those other things you've talked about. I'm not, this isn't, please don't misinterpret this as taking anything away from them. Sure. They're, they're fine. They're, they're, they're great pieces within themselves. Yeah. But there is nothing. There is nothing and never will be nothing like thing. It's called, I just call it, I've, I've shortened it now to just thing because the thing that should not be was me and the movie is about me but in the course of that movie and my desperation to try and prove who I am you get to see the wrestling business in a way you've never seen it before 
And the people that are in it, half of the cast is dead. It had Yokozuna, I got Bam Bam, I got fucking uh, Rad, I got uh, Owen. I mean, all these people, and Owen is so amazing in this fucking movie. Yokozuna, he's fun. Rodney is so fucking adorable in this movie, man. He's just great. He's fucking funnier than shit. And it is just this precious fucking diamond. And I've never understood why Vince didn't call me on the phone and say, fuck, Max, let's get together and talk about this and get this fucking thing out so the world can see this. But I don't care about that anymore. Um, I obviously am never going to fucking do anything in the WWF again. They've made it clear after 30 years, like I said. Never a phone call, never a fucking, hey, not a fucking, like I said, you know, I, I just watched a special on The Warrior and everybody, you know, all the shit they did to him and they all apologized and hug neck and everything got better and then he goes and then he dies right after that. And it's like, I still don't understand what I did that was so bad that I don't even didn't even deserve a fucking phone call to say, let's let's fucking sit down and talk this out. You know, let's sit down and say, hey, where could we go with this? And quite frankly, um, Brian, Brian will hear this. Brian already knows. I'm in contact with Brian. And uh, I'm telling you right now, we're going to do something. And I don't know. First of all, the first thing we got to do is we got to get this record out so that wrestling fans can hear it and tell the real story that we can finally debunk the whole Jeff Jarrett moment because that's never been debunked. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked Brian the other day, I said, why? He goes, it just fell by the fucking wayside when Steve Miller shot the whole project down. So when Steve Miller killed it, it died. That was it. Did you ever find out why? Did you ever find out why he fucking just he? I mean, you don't have to tell us why, but you I don't know, know why. why. I don't know why. He did. He never fucking. He never said. He what he said to me is, well, I talked to my manager, and my manager said, you don't want to be involved in the wrestling business. What's it going to do to your career? And I oh, said, so it's the industry fuckers that got involved, yeah, got in his ear, that's who got and just said to him, too. fucking leave it, man. Yeah. Yeah, leave it. Don't fuck with this. And you know what it was? That's nothing, in my opinion, but jealousy. And Steve Miller, I don't think he realizes what he lost by not embracing the wrestling crowd. Can you imagine if that fucker would have gone on fucking WWF television, how many more records he would have sold? And not think to about mention, the, as those, those moments, those moments last forever. Like those, and not those only that, things, yeah. you know what he was going to be on the fucking show? He was going to be my lawyer. He was going to be my lawyer, and that's where we were going to go save Brian from fucking Jeff Jarrett. Wow. I, I mean, and what did they have at WrestleMania 11? It was LT versus Bam Bam Bigelow in the yeah. main event. Yeah. Diesel you know, versus Sean. We went to a party. After that, it was in some really fucking high-end deal. It was a double-level place, and there was a balcony above, and I was I was nobody. And so I I was actually just sitting upstairs kind of crying. 
because I knew my career was over and uh, I was pretty sure I wasn't ever going to be in a WrestleMania. And um, I looked down and I remember that match between Bam Bam and LT and fucking Bam Bam lost and got up and ran out of the fucking arena. And when they brought LT back stage after that match, he was breathing out of every orifice in his fucking body. You could see it at the end of the match. He was, yeah, he was he dead. That one. He was dead. Fucking we, yeah. Bam Bam almost kipped up and lands on his feet, runs out of the fucking arena. LT was down for like three hours after that. He was yeah. fucked. Yeah. And, you know, I stood there watching LT getting everybody slapping him on the back and everything. And I just knew my career was over. And I had already decided, you know, that I was going to, and you know, so this is now you guys, so let me tell you, I'll tell you another story that goes after this because, and then this will help you understand when I finally, you know, the world loves an underdog, right? And I, I'm not trying to fucking baby face off of being an underdog, but I was an underdog and I had failed at everything I wanted to do in the wrestling business. Um, and it broke my heart. It killed me. It crushed me. So when I went back home, I, uh, I went and got in a casting agency in Salt Lake City. Utah is a tremendous hub for, um, in fact, they call it LA North. I don't know if you know that. They call uh, Utah LA North. And the reason is Utah has gone out of its way to accommodate the film industry. And uh, I went and I found the highest profile agent in Salt Lake. I went and talked to her. She happened to be a friend of my auntie. So she gave me a, she gave me a, a, a interview and I went with, met with her. And that day she hired me on the spot. The next day they called me and they said, we've got, an, we've got a gig for you. And I said, really, what is it? And she said, they want you to be a voiceover for a video game. And I said, fucking A. And I went and did that. And uh, shortly after that, a fucking video game comes out called Max Payne. And I start realizing that the makers of that fucking video game, I'd given them a dossier full of my fucking pictures and my stuff. Mm. And we ended up we ended up settling. I can't talk much about it. Sure. But my first fucking gig out of the wrestling business, first fucking gig, they stole my entirety. Well, I heard stories. So, you know, it's just, so that, by that point, all my point is, brother, please, I'll let you go. No, 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 go. Well, my point is, is, dude, when that happened to me, when that, when, when that went down, I just went, dude, maybe you should just fucking go be a farmer or something for fuck's sakes, because you're just not meant to fucking, for whatever reason, I'm just a fucking heat seeker. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, I fought, we had to fight with fucking them. So. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I listened to many, many years ago now, a really old grainy interview, I think that you did with someone over the phone, maybe fucking 
15 or so years ago. I don't oh, know. It was if Ripper. It was uh, Ripper the Clown. Hot, yeah. I just, I, yeah. And, and, and I, I listened to it many, many years ago. And I remember you saying about the, the Max Payne computer game. And I also remember v vaguely about something to do with you maybe making your own T-shirts and wearing something in the ring, what you were wearing in the ring. They didn't like what you were wearing. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Oh, fuck. So I don't know if you remember, but when I would, the shirts I wore in the ring, it said fashion victim Max Payne on the back, right? Yeah. Well, fashion victim actually at the time was a t-shirt manufacturer. Right. They had nothing to do with those. They, they, I did that. I found them, Nick and I, in fact, Nick, said, I know this fucking place is heavy metal shop on our way to Fayetteville, uh, North Carolina. And we'd stop there every time we'd go to fucking Fayetteville. And, uh, and I fucking bought this shirt that was fashion victim. And I asked the guy, I said, you know how to get a hold of these guys? And he gave me their phone number because that's how he ordered his shirts. And I called the guy. And the guy took care of me in my whole wrestling career. When I left the wrestling business and the WC got rid of me, what happened right after the WCW, or right after I left? The NWO. Hogan went to fucking there in the NWO. You yeah. remember their T-shirts? Yeah. Black with the big white letters on the front of it. Yeah. Just like mine. You know why? The guy that was my t-shirt guy moved, moved from Illinois to, to Atlanta to be the t-shirt manufacturer for the WCW at the time. And they actually took my t-shirt guy when I left and he moved to Atlanta because of WCW and became a t-shirt manufacturer for the NWO. Oh, now, I'm, not, I'm not upset about that. It just shows you like you were talking about, you know, I know what my impact was, I think. Um, I, I would like to believe that anybody who came after me and uh, uh, Chris Jericho, uh, any of the guys, the guys that are there now, um, I'd like to believe that maybe they were inspired a little bit by fucking kind of a, you know, not, a, not the biggest character, but definitely a character of the WCW. Well, even, even the headbangers. Well, I spoke to Jordan earlier about the headbangers. And I mean, that's not too far from really, you know, a, a, a derivative of Max Payne. You right. know, it, the, the heavy metal T-shirts, you know, maybe not the fucking skirts. No, um, no. But, you know, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I love kilts, so don't get me yeah. wrong. No, but um, maybe, you know, I mean. No. no, you're right. And, you know, the thing that's funny about that is, you know, that's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't, like I said, dude, it, it would, the animosity part of that in me is gone, you know? Um, because good fucking God, that shit will kill you. You know, uh, it will eat you alive. Um, I'm just glad one that I'm still here Two that now I can fucking tell the story unabated. Nobody can stop me now. Um, because people like yourselves and wrestling fans, they don't give a fuck. They, I mean, they, of course, they like 
what the WWF and I mean, the, the wrestling fans are the wrestling fans, but there's also a group of people out there that are like yourselves that are huge uh, wrestling historians and want to know where are they now and why, you know, and I, I didn't realize, I got to be honest with you. I didn't think anybody gave a fuck. I really didn't. Um, and when I went and did my first autograph signing, I couldn't believe the response I got from people. It was amazing. And I was so happy. And uh, I just want to tell my story just because one, for my children's sake, I've never given up. I started pursuing my dream when I was in takedown. I was 16 years old. I'm now 60. That was 46 years ago. I started pursuing my dream. And I've never fucking quit. And I'm not going to quit until there are movies that say a film by Max Payne, that there are records released that say a record by Max Payne. And then I will be fulfilled. Um, but I've never given up on my dream. And I hope that it proved, I think this is the part of the underdog that I can't wait to share with the world that you should never give up on your dreams because if you stick with them, if you believe in them and you stick with them, they will come true in some way or another. The universe will manifest you. And the, the universe in the last couple of years has been sending these wonderful, incredible fucking things my way that when I was doing it, it wasn't my turn. And now, now maybe it's my turn. Well, that is, we, we certainly hope it's your turn. We, I get the feeling that your movie might leave one or two people sweating in the wrestling world. I don't know. I, I don't know why. I mean, even the movie, <laughs> there's nothing in it that's really bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's more of a fucking, it's more of a degrade on me than it is on anybody else because I'm the one that failed, you know. I'm the fucker that's crying about not being a part of the clique and what do I got to do? And, you know, um, I, I always have to remember for me, I always have to remember that I've always tried. I, I'm not, I'm not here to blow anybody's candle out because I don't believe you have to blow anybody's candle out to make your own shine. Unfortunately, the wrestling business is based on that. Yeah. I, I think it's sad um but there's not much room in the wrestling business for that kind of kindness because that's always viewed as weakness and now i don't have to view that as weakness because first of all i've got somebody to look after me and uh i am i'm just excited to to come back there's really nothing in the wrestling business that anybody would have to you know hide from me over, uh, that it would, it would sweat them. I'm certainly not a physical threat to anybody any longer. Way too fucking old for that. And besides that, I'm retired. I fucking fought enough in my life. The last thing I want to do is be aggressive that way. Um, besides that, if I'm going to have any aggression, it's going to be in my music and I'll take it out there. 
Max, I have one more question for you. Um, and this is something that Chris is probably going di to be dying to ask as well. Where are the uh, Max Payne action figures? I never got one, but they're coming. That's a promise. Oh, yeah, dude. There we go. Not only am I going to do action figures, my friends, um, I'm going to make guitars. I'm going to do all kinds of a fucking, you know, I want to do, uh, I want to do a clothing line. Um, I'm still a heavy metal guy, as you can plainly tell. I've always been a fucking heavy metal guy. I was fucking, that was the hardest part about being Man Mountain Rock. It just defied who I was. I was never a hippie. I was always a fucking heavy metal guy. And, uh, you know, I grew up listening to Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath, and Kiss. So, uh, eventually, the marketing side will come, will come, and we're going to make some, we're going to make some cool shit. I hope, I hope. So, okay. but I, I really believe we're going to have some dolls and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I heard a quote the other day, someone saying, um, your heavy metal guys are good guys pretending to be bad and hippies yeah. are good, uh, bad guys pretending to be good. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, I, we truly believe that too, man. You know, you are, you, this has been an incredible interview. I mean, it has been hey, we're probably. We're just getting started, brothers. Listen, I mean this. See, that's what I want everybody to know. Um, here's why I'm different. And this is what I want to say. And I want to start preaching this. Okay, I had a wrestling career. Um, and I'm proud of it. I am. Because when you see what I accomplished, finally, um, it's something to be proud of. It really is. Um, I, I can't be anything but proud. And now's my time. And I want to accomplish the things and get those things out there so that the rest of the world can enjoy. It's not just me. This is me not being selfish. Like I said, Road Dog is one of the greatest fucking vocalists you've ever heard. You'll be shocked. I mean, I'm serious as a fucking heart attack. And I find it a bit ironic almost. Brian and I hadn't been in contact for 30 years. And I just talked to him like a month before the WWF let him go. And here, all of a sudden, we're back together. And I said, maybe now we can fucking go show the world what an amazing motherfucking musician we are. You know, what motherfucking great musicians we are. Because Brian is incredible. He is one of the, he is one of the most incredible musicians you can ever imagine. He's got a just incredible voice. And I hope that the next time that we get together, um, this is the part that I love, and I'll do all day. I'll do it anywhere in the world. I'll go talk to people. I'll go talk to fans. I'll be with fans anytime because the fans are what brought me out, got me back. I mean, obviously, somebody out there wanted me to come back because when this guy finally found me, he said, you don't know how fucking hard people have been trying to get a hold of you. And I said, I guess I don't, because I, like I said, I thought I was just a fucking water under the bridge guy. And uh, I'm excited to be back. And I got another story to tell that 
has everything to do with wrestling and nothing to do with it at all. And that's the cool part about it. And so wrestling can't take that away from them. They can't take the way the fact that I build a recording studio and spend my own money to record an album that nobody's ever heard. And uh, you're, you'll, you'll get to hear it. It's going to be uh, my goal. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I might wait just because I want it to be a bigger buildup. WrestleCon, I'm going to WrestleCon on the 5th. And then there's a big event in New York on the 4th of March that I'm going to before I go to WrestleCon. And then I'm just going to fucking go any place in the world people are interested in having me. And um, if I can do this till I die, that's what I'm hoping for. Man. Yeah. If, we, if you can get over here, Max, we oh, will. Coming. Man, if you come to the UK, we're on the fucking list, man. And we will. You know what? You know you are. Yeah. You know, we'll awesome. be there. Fucking wait in there. I'll have you sign my magazines. For, I'll have forget uh, that, Chris. Chris, he's welcome for tea and cake. For tea and cakes, baby. Yeah, you know. Oh, all I, I want to know is if they've got some good kind of, uh, shall we say, what's the legal status of, uh, you know, um, we've. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm pretty sure it can catch you drift. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the legal status of uh, various things over here doesn't seem to bother anyone over here. So um, we're they're a little bit lax on stuff like that. So Thank God it's finally came to the United States like that, too. There's only a couple of states that it's still like that. And for <laughs> fuck's sakes, I happen to live in one. Oh, you're joking. But, no, I live no. in Idaho. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, we, we are, I mean we just appreciate so much the time that you've given us because like I say, this is an insight into, into you that it is just invaluable and it's been incredible. It's been emotional. It's been, you know, and, and your story of serendipity as to say, you know, even now with BG uh, uh, James being released from the WWE at this time means that maybe he's got a bit more time now to kind of do what, needs to be done so fuck man this has been emotional roller coaster for us we just yeah. appreciate you just laying everything down so candidly for us you know we're just a couple of fucking jabronis from the uk <laughs> man so hey, you know what though let me tell you something i've told this story before and i mean it this is a god's truth probably the one of the biggest reasons that i was I don't know how else to put it, that not look down on, but I couldn't stand being in the dressing room with the egos. I hated it. So I always hang out, hung out with the with the job guys. I dressed with the job guys, I, everything I did, I always, and if you talk to any of them, they'll tell you that. And I always hung out with them because they were always the real dudes. Man, they would fucking have barbecues in the backs of their cars and shit. And they would fucking do fun shit. And they would always invite me to their parties. And they were always kind to me. And, you know, I, maybe it was motivated by, you know, maybe what, you know, uh, hey, I'll be good to him because maybe it'll do something for me down the road. But they were always the salt of the earth guys. And they were the ones, you know, the guy that taught me the wrestling business, Red Bastine, said, 
don't ever fucking look down on the jabronis. He goes, those motherfuckers are a huge important part of the business. And what you do, what you guys do, it isn't it isn't a jabroni thing. You know, that's the part, you know, guys like uh, The Rock made the word jabroni a worldwide phenomenon. And it's the jabroni status is a little misunderstood. And quite frankly, the true word should be the workers, because that's the guys that do the fucking work. You're, they were the workhorses of the business for years and years and years and years and still are. They still use that mentality. Hmm. And they are the real people that I loved hanging out with. In fact, the first time I met Triple H was he was in the fucking jabroni dressing, dressing room and he was terrorizing yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, Paul and I, Paul and I were really good friends, and he went his own way. And I'm fuck, I'm happy for Paul. I am so happy for Paul. He got everything he wanted, and uh, I don't, I don't have a problem with with that. But guys like yourself and that do it well, and you do it well, and I promise you, my promise to you guys is, I will always be available for you. I will make time because the people that you talk to are the people I want to talk to. So that's what matters. Man, we appreciate that. We we embrace our jobber status, man. We 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 say it, don't we, Jordan? We always yeah. say it on every episode when we chat to anyone, you know. We, we don't mind being squashed by Max Payne. You know, <laughs> I would happily be put in the painkiller. I would embrace that jabroni status. You know, I watched a special on Randy Savage. Just a good closing note. I watched a special on, uh, I, I've watched a lot of those A&E, uh, the life of like Randy and, and uh, uh, Warrior and Roddy Piper and... And the one on Randy Savage was amazing. And I'll tell you why I think it was the most amazing part of it is they interviewed Steamboat. And uh, have you seen this one on Macho Man? The one where they, they interviewed Steamboat about WrestleMania 3? Steamboat's talking about the match he and uh, Savage had at WrestleMania 3. Mm-hmm. And uh, Savage called Steamboat and said, we need to get together. And they got together and Savage had something like 171 points in a script he'd written down. The whole fucking match was written down. And Steamboat fucking, like they had to sit like the day before in a hotel and fucking Steamboat had to prove to Macho Man that he had the whole fucking match in his head, right? And I really loved Ricky for telling this story because it's amazing. That's what people don't understand about wrestling. To be able to go out and choreograph a match and go out and perform it and then add the liveness and the spontaneity of doing it live um, is incredible. But what Ricky said about that match was what mattered. He said, Savage lost. He got beat that night. By the time he left the fucking Pontiac Silverdome that night, he had more fucking heat than he did before he got in the fucking ring. And he just lost the match to Steamboat. Not one fucking person gave a shit that he lost that match 
they cared that he was a fucking heel on his way out the door. And fucking, that's what made Randy and great wrestlers, truly great wrestlers. Because it's not about Randy fucking getting his, getting a win. Professional wrestling isn't about fucking getting a win. Professional wrestling is about making money and satisfying the audience. And it's just like a great fucking movie. It has to fucking, you, you go in, you sit down, and you willingly suspend your disbelief, and you fucking hate that motherfucker from the time he walks in the ring till he leaves it. And he never broke character. And fucking Steamboat said, that's what Macho Man was proud of. He didn't give a fuck about losing. He gave a fuck about being a heel on his way out of the Pontiac Silverdome in front of the biggest indoor crowd in the history of mankind at the time. And that's what wrestling's about. And if you ever forget that, then you've really lost why it's such a fucking, why people love it so much is because it's just like a movie. It has the ability to give you exactly what you want and then snatch it away from you just as fast so that you can start working on getting it back again. And that's the part of the wrestling business that I've always fucking loved. And it always broke my heart how many guys took themselves so fucking seriously. You know, there's so many guys as a fucking shooter, I could have killed them in a heartbeat. And I didn't because that's not who I was. I knew that the business was meant to be this way. And that's what I love about the wrestling business. That's the part I loved so much about the wrestling business. And I, I, I do consider it an honor that I was accepted in a lot of ways. And I'm still here, and I'm excited to finish telling my story. Amazing. Yeah. You know. And I will be back, you guys. So here's what's coming up. I've got a I've got a signing, a big show in New York, the first of March. I've got WrestleCon. You guys coming to WrestleCon by chance? Um, a, in, in the states, difficult to travel. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to travel oh, at the moment. Of fucking COVID still. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm doing I'm doing uh, WrestleCon in uh, April, and then I don't know after that. Um, I have a feeling things are going to continue to get more crazy in my life now that the fact that people are starting to know that I'm out there and the stories I'm starting to tell are starting to make a little more sense. So I really look forward to the future and I look forward to doing more interviews with you guys. And I, I promise you, we'll, you can count me as one of your regulars, friends. I, I will, you know, I'm open to anything. I'm, I love great ideas and, uh, Stay in touch with me. 100%, man. We will. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. It's been, it's been amazing. And we can't, I can't thank you enough for just getting back to us in the first place. Like, that's just, that's just part, of the, part of the, yeah. You guys are great. You really are. You're, you're good at this, man. You, you made me feel so at ease right from the get-go. And I just want to thank you. And like I said, I, uh, I appreciate you doing, doing the interview with me and, uh, Let's just say this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship, friends.
man that's Thank incredible you. you know we do we do like the the aspect the historian aspect of it we're keeping these these stories alive and we're gonna we're gonna keep doing it and like i say we really appreciate your time, Max. You know, we cannot thank you enough. It's been incredible. Hey, if you run across Robbie Brookside, you tell him I say, said hello. <laughs> no worries, man. Do you ever see Robbie? Well, not for a long time. Not for a long time. He's been in the States for a while. But, you know, before he went over there and started working uh, over there. He's here the now? Things, I think he is in the States, he was yeah. In Florida, yeah. He was yeah. in Florida for a is that like he's like working, working as in a wrestler? Head head trainer. He was. He was. I'm not sure if he was head trainer. But he's one of the trainers for WWE. Are you fucking real? No, that I doesn't surprise me. No. Of course he is. He's friends with William. Yeah, I mean, at one point you had Dave Taylor, you had Robbie Brookside, you had They're William older, Regal, yeah. you had like yeah. pretty much it was a, a a British a group of British guys that were training the youngsters. Well, I knew once. I knew once that Steve, because Steve lived with me for a while. Uh, Steve Regal, yeah, William. Yeah, he lived with me for a while, and I helped him a lot when he first got to the states because he didn't uh, he didn't know anybody else. So Lord I mean, Skip and I were pretty good friends until he got he got a little tired of me too, and he just was pissed that I wasn't. You know, people had an idea of the way I should do things, and if I didn't do it their way, then it's easy for you to dismiss me, but that's okay. I still love Darren. I have no animosity towards Darren either. I, I just, I, I just want everybody to know. I don't, I don't look at it that way. I, I look at it that I have nothing but fond memories of like Darren and and Robbie Brookside. Mm. Jesus Christ, I don't know if you guys know this, but there is a badass fucking show I was on in England about twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. Brookside did it. You know about this? Well, I mean, I know he, there were shows he that he... the thing where he took the camera and shot a behind-the-scenes wrestling thing for the for the BBC. Oh shit! Do you know what? I do remember it. Were you in that? Oh fuck! Go watch it. Oh, dude, I'm gonna watch it again because I do remember it as well. I remember yeah. it. It has got one of the greatest fucking moments in my life. In that, I we were all fucked up and we. <laughs> I had one of my best friends with me and Robbie, and we went to the wrong fucking town. The only time in my life I ever missed a shot was live on a BBC camera, for Christ's sake. Man, I, I do remember the documentary. We're going to watch it. And talk about documentary. There has got to be someone out there, even if you get like a Kickstarter going or something. To That's get... what I'd like to do. That's what I really would like to do. Is Max, do, do it, man. There has got to be, and I'm sure, um, however you might feel how, you know, you may have rubbed people up the wrong way certain times or whatever. Fuck all that. There's got to be some people out there that, that want to see this and they'll be like, do you know what? Let's get this done. Do not underestimate the power of the, the mark because we will fucking happily chip in a few quid um, to get this shit off the ground. So if you start a Kickstarter, myself and Jordan will be happily chucking in a five or a tenner, a few get, quid. Get the promotion going, yeah. Yeah, That's man, yeah. please I'm do. I'm going to do it. I really am. So here's the thing. Here's what I, this is what I got to do is I have a, I've got a guy who's going to, you know, one of the things I know about myself is, um, I am a typical musician, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm scattered in some ways. In other ways, I'm the most ADHD guy you'd ever fucking meet. 
And I, I have a bit of OC, OCD in me as well, but I'm not very good at managing myself because I'm, I'm way too kind. So I've got a guy that's going to start looking after me. And that's got to be the first thing. I got to do this right this time and make sure that I, because I don't, I, do, I won't leave this time. I'm not going to leave until I get these things done because it, it is the, the wrestling fans, they deserve to see this stuff and I'm going to get it done. That's a promise. And I, I will, I will be in touch with you guys as soon as I start to move in that direction. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks again, Max, man. Thank you. Chris and George, you guys were fucking awesome. Man, next time so I much. come on, next time I come on, I'll play. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Can't wait. I'll, fucking, I'll play one. So I would, I'm going to leave you with something that's going to fucking blow your mind. So Nick Patrick and I wrote this song called Bleed to Feed. And it is a bad motherfucker. And uh, part of the reason I can't wait to do this band, I don't want to expose too much. Yeah, man, yeah. But I'm here to tell you, because I want people the first time they come to see one of our shows, you know, I want them to fucking feel the anxiety that I'm trying to create in them. And this song is something else. And when you go watch that uh, Robbie Brookside thing. Yeah. I got a crystal ball and I'm playing bleed to feed in that fucking show. And wow. I can tell you that song is going to be the biggest song we do at a show. It'll always be the last song of the show. And because you will walk, my goal is if I could ever, if I ever get to no, I'm going to, when I play in front of a live audience, I always wanted this. I always wanted you, you know, like you're walking out of a concert, man, when you're fucking, we're with a crowd and you're walking out of the concert. I want you to get like out the door and stop and turn around and go, what the fuck was that? <laughs> you know, I, I really want you to just be fucking going, well, I thought I'd, I thought I'd seen everything in rock and roll, you know? And that's why I wanted to bring the wrestling business to rock and roll. So you guys, I promise you, you're on my A-list. I'm going to come back and talk to you anytime you want. You got more questions. If you, you know, you just stay in touch with me and I'll just, uh, something happens, you call me. In fact, um, I told you who my guy is. I'll send you his link. I'm not easy to get a hold of. You lucked out because right now I'm still in control of my stuff. Right. I'm gonna let control let control go of my Facebook and all that stuff because I am not a social media guy. I fucking hate it. I'm sorry. I'm just not. I if I'm gonna spend time on social media, I'd rather spend time playing my guitar and recording music. Yeah. So I I, I understand the importance of social media. I, I do. I just am not good at it. So if somebody else is gonna handle that for me, just know you can get a hold of me. All right. And I'll make sure you know how to get a hold of me. If you can't can't get a hold of me through the channel you just went through, I'll make sure you have the link to get a hold of my guy. His name's Nick Christie, Think Signatures. And if you want to, you know, just get a hold of him and we'll work it out, no matter what. That's my promise to you. Perfect. Thank, Thank you, you so man. much, Max. We Thank really you so much. It. All right, fellas. Cheers. It was, Take care. It was awesome, man. <laughs> Chris and Jordan, thank you.
Thank you, man. Thank you, man. God bless you. We'll talk again soon. That's my promise. Take care, brother. Wow. Bro, um, that that was amazing. That was something that literally came together over the course of a day or two. And it's like I said, I said it in the in the interview itself, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Was something that... about that that just you know, it was just just brilliant. And we cannot thank Max enough for taking the time. Again, it's a considerable amount of time to join us and talk to us and just be so cool about it. Uh, what I mean, fucking hell. Again, another he almost left Chris speechless. I mean, on numerous occasions, it's like we we are humbled by the fact that these guys who have been in the business feel so comfortable that they can sit with us for three hours, three fucking three hours, hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, and just talk about stuff. And, you know, we fucking hell, you know, it is, again, it's just incredible. Like Jordan said, this happened over the course of about a day. Um, I mean, it was on the cards maybe last week or whatever. And, you know, we were trying to organize stuff with Max and, you know, get it, get it on, penciled in or whatever. But we're just humbled that he was able, you know, we, the three hours of someone's time yeah. is is valuable. And he's got a lot to say. And fuck me, man. We need to see this documentary. We, we need, need to see. To we need the we need to hear the music. We need to hear the music. We need to when I, you know, I I heard uh Mick Foley talking about Road Dog being the singer in his band. I had to ask him. We had to get that. And I think we got a few little exclusives. I think we got a few exclusives on this show, some, baby. Some serious bits and bobs. Serious been... bits and bobs. Gassed. We I'm 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 you know, I'm supposed to, it's 11 o'clock at night, all right? And I'm completely fucking wired now. I'm supposed to go to bed. I've got I'm, work in the morning. I'm Today, Fuck. I'm living off of three and a half hours sleep that I got the night before. Um, and I am, I was really tired all day. And this came, and now I'm, you know, I'm no longer tired. I'm wired. That's what, tired, they ain't tired. We're wired, yeah. baby. Um, and I managed to get through a whole can of iron brew. Bro. Um, I'm halfway through a bottle as well, you know. So a shout out to Iron Brew. Hopefully we'll get that sponsorship coming through. <laughs> yeah. We've got we've got to thank Zenpop for doing their thing. The giveaway is almost set. We are ready to get that going. Mm -hmm. I might have to start that, you know, as soon as this episode drops. Beginning of the week, baby. Yeah. yeah. Monday. Um, so there will be a giveaway from Zenpop. Thank you to them. Zenpop.jp. Use the code GRAPPLE for $5 off your next order. Link in the description. And if you want some sweet fucking merch. Yeah. <laughs> sweet Chat Grapple and Cheap Pops merch. You can see hats. You can see t-shirts. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of other things. There's travel mugs. Clocks. And I use the word clock with an L in it. You know. <laughs> mate, yeah, mate who knows what will come in the future. But, yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about getting a clock. I'm whacking it behind me right now, baby. You know, it is... The clocks are fucking sweet, man. Pillows. Are you fucking kidding me, bro? 
Get yourself a cushion. Pillows. There's, we've also got the Ico Pro Jacked Award winner T-shirts, the baseball style T-shirts, everything like that. So definitely the link will be in the description as it is starting to go up on other videos. Check out that link at Redbubble and you'll find all of our brand new merch. It is something to see, really is. Wow, I, I'm so fucking wide right now. i got to say thank you to everyone that's stuck around for another three hours or however long this is you know this is it was max Payne. you couldn't couldn't stop him no um, but what an absolutely because you know he's a lovely guy again absolute fucking salt of the earth guy um and and very philosophical um i know he said he probably back in the day he wasn't always like this you know and he was maybe rub people up the wrong way but Fuck, man, he just came across as a very nice guy and he has got shit to say. And he has got, you know, I'm 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 sold, man. He's got his own walking, you know, wrestling with shadows. He's got his own could well be beyond the map, yeah. you know, and it needs to be done. So anybody watching this um, who has an interest and that guy who took the photo of him smashing the guitar over the one of the nasty boys heads if you're watching this a, if you you know we get, all need to see yeah get in contact with us and we'll send it on to max or you know try and get older max or whatever but fuck man that was just three hours again of 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 just wrestling beautifulness you know yeah it's it was and it, i can only say it was something it was really something it really so if was. you're not if you're watching this and you're not already subscribed, sweet Jesus, hit the bell. Like there's so many interviews out there that we've got now. Like, you know, you know, other than Max Payne, we've had Sonny Ono, Kiwi, Jameson, Santino, you know. Eric Watts. Eric Watts, yeah. Another three-hour extravaganza. You know, Chris, Chris Hamrick. Hamrick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you hit those buttons, subscribe, you know, you don't even need the notifications. You know, nobody likes notifications of anything these days. I hate notifications of, you know, social media. But subscribe, like, comment. You know, if you're listening, you know, give us a five stars on Apple. Someone left one just just recently, you know, thankful for that, really am. Meltzer, give us that eight and a half star. Yeah, give us like eight and a half star in, in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> in the Stevenage Dome. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably right in saying that your parsnip has been buttered tonight. My parsnip is well and truly buttered. Um, I, I fucking, I fucking love it when we ask the question to a guest and we pop them. You know what I mean? Like, we, I think we popped Max a few times with a few questions tonight, and that does butter my parsnip because it means we're doing something right. And these two jabronis will happily, uh, you know, embrace our jabroni status with being squashed by Max Payne tonight. Even even that that whole philosophical look on jobbers slash workers was just, yeah, you know, something to check out and I might have to try and cut that and make that into its own small video because that was that was a really beautiful piece there it, it was this interview was littered with beautiful little anecdotes um yeah. beautiful stories 
um, interwoven with emotional, you know, we, we, you know, he, he had his hair standing up, you know, he almost was teared up at one yeah, point. Yeah, he got very you know? got emotional as well, man. And Fuck. I mean, but what, what more what more can you ask for? You know, so please, guys, if you enjoyed this interview as much as we did, slap that bell, subscribe, fucking like, share it, and just enjoy, you know? Please enjoy it. Please do. Thank you to Zenpop. Of course, Zenpop.jp. You know, hit up Redbubble for our stuff. Hit the subscribe and like buttons. We're going to get out of here and we're going to, yeah. you know, talk about this a bit more after we stop recording. So <laughs> thank you so much for staying with us. Thank you for checking us out. We love you all. If you know who it is. It's, it's, you know, JB is the best Chris in all the wrestling podcasts. Chris, Boom. And that was Max Payne, baby. Take care, everyone. Peace.